This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Hound by H.P. Lovecraft. It's read by Martin Reto for Lagamus. It runs 23 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. This Lagamus recording may be distributed and adapted freely for any purpose. The Hound by Howard Phillips Lovecraft Read by Martin Rato. In my tortured ears there sounds unceasingly a nightmare whirring and flapping, and a faint distant baying as of some gigantic hound. It is not dream, it is not, I fear, even madness, for too much has already happened to give me these merciful doubts. St. John is a mangled corpse, I alone know why and such is my knowledge that I am about to blow out my brains for fear I shall be mangled in the same way. Down unlit and illimitable corridors of eldritch fantasy sweeps the black, shapeless nemesis that drives me to self-annihilation. May heaven forgive the folly and morbidity which led us both to so monstrous a fate. Wearied with the commonplaces of a prosaic world, where even the joys of romance and adventure soon grow stale, St. John and I had followed enthusiastically every aesthetic and intellectual movement which promised respite from our devastating ennui. The enigmas of the symbolists and the ecstasies of the pre-Raphaelites all were ours in their time, but each new mood was drained too soon of its diverting novelty and appeal. Only the sombre philosophy of the decadence could help us, and this we found potent only by increasing gradually the depth and diabolism of our penetrations. Baudelaire and Huysmans were soon exhausted of thrills, till finally there remained for us only the more direct stimuli of unnatural personal experiences and adventures. It was this frightful emotional need which led us eventually to that detestable course which even in my present fear I mention with shame and timidity, that hideous extremity of human outrage, the abhorred practice of grave-robbing. I cannot reveal the details of our shocking expedition or catalogue even partly the worst of the trophies adorning the nameless museum where we jointly dwelt, alone and servantless. Our museum was a blasphemous, unthinkable place, where with the satanic taste of neurotic virtuosi we had assembled a universe of terror and a secret room far, far underground, where huge winged demons carven of basalt and onyx vomited from wide grinning mouths weird green and orange light, and hidden pneumatic pipes ruffled into kaleidoscopic dances of death the line of red charnel things hand in hand woven in voluminous black hangings. Through these pipes came at will the odors our moods most craved, sometimes the scent of pale funeral lilies, 
sometimes the narcotic incense of imagined eastern shrines of the kingly dead, and sometimes, how I shudder to recall it, the frightful soul-upheaving stenches of the uncovered grave. Around the walls of this repellent chamber were cases of antique mummies alternating with comely lifelike bodies perfectly stuffed and cured by the taxidermist's art, and with headstones snatched from the oldest churchyards of the world. Niches here and there contained skulls of all shapes, and heads preserved in various stages of dissolution. There one might find the rotting, bald pates of famous noblemen, and the flesh and radiantly golden heads of new-buried children. Statues and paintings there were, all of fiendish subjects and some executed by St. John and myself. A locked portfolio bound in tanned human skin held certain unknown and unnameable drawings which it was rumored Goya had perpetrated but dared not acknowledge. There were nauseous musical instruments, stringed, brass, woodwind, on which St. John and I sometimes produced dissonances of exquisite morbidity and cacodemoniacal ghastliness whilst in a multitude of inlaid ebony cabinets reposed the most incredible and unimaginable variety of tomb loot ever assembled by human madness and perversity. It is of this loot in particular that I must not speak. Thank God I had the courage to destroy it long before I thought of destroying myself. The predatory excursions on which we collected our unmentionable treasures were always artistically memorable events. We were no vulgar ghouls, but worked only under certain conditions of mood, landscape, environment, weather, season, and moonlight. These pastimes were to us the most exquisite forms of aesthetic expression, and we gave their details a fastidious technical care. An inappropriate hour, a jarring lighting effect, or a clumsy manipulation of the damp sod would almost totally destroy for us that ecstatic titillation which followed the exhumation of some ominous, grinning secret of the earth. Our quest for novel scenes and piquant conditions was feverish and insatiate. St. John was always the leader, and he it was who led the way at last to that mocking, accursed spot which brought us to our hideous and inevitable doom. By what malign fatality were we lured to that terrible Holland churchyard? I think it was the dark rumor and legendary the tales of one buried for five centuries who had himself been a ghoul in his time, and had stolen a potent thing from a mighty sepulchre. I can recall the scene in these final moments, the pale autumnal moon over the graves casting long, horrible shadows, the grotesque trees drooping sullenly to meet the neglected grass and the crumbling slabs the vast legions of strangely colossal bats that flew against the moon, the antique ivy church pointing a huge spectral finger at the livid sky, the phosphorescent insects that danced like death-fires under the yews in a distant corner, 
the odors of mold, vegetation, and less explicable things that mingled feebly with the night wind from over far swamps and seas. And worst of all, the faint, deep-toned baying of some gigantic hound which we could neither see nor definitely place. As we heard the suggestion of baying, we shuddered, remembering the tales of the peasantry, for he whom we sought had centuries before been found in this selfsame spot, torn and mangled by the claws and teeth of some unspeakable beast. I remember how we delved in the ghoul's grave with our spades, and how we thrilled at the picture of ourselves, the grave, the pale watching moon, the horrible shadows, the grotesque trees, the titanic bats, the antique church, the dancing death-fires, the sickening odors, the gently morning night wind, and the strange half-heard directionless baying, of whose objective existence we could scarcely be sure. Then we struck a substance harder than the damp mold, and beheld a rotting oblong box crusted with mineral deposits from the long undisturbed ground. It was incredibly tough and thick, but so old that we finally pried it open and feasted our eyes on what it held. Much, amazingly much, was left of the object despite the lapse of five hundred years. The skeleton, though crushed in places by the jaws of the thing that had killed it, held together with surprising firmness, and we gloated over the clean white skull and its long, firm teeth and its eyeless sockets that once had glowed with a charnel fever like our own. In the coffin lay an amulet of curious and exotic design which had apparently been worn around the sleeper's neck. It was the oddly conventionalized figure of a crouching, winged hound, or sphinx with a semi-canine face, and was exquisitely carved in antique oriental fashion from a small piece of green jade. The expression of its features was repellent in the extreme, savoring at once of death, bestiality, and malevolence. Around the base was an inscription in characters which neither St. John nor I could identify, and on the bottom, like a maker's seal, was graven a grotesque and formidable skull. Immediately upon beholding this amulet we knew that we must possess it, that this treasure alone was our logical pelf from the centuried grave. Even had its outlines been unfamiliar, we would have desired it, but as we looked more closely, we saw that it was not wholly unfamiliar. Alien it indeed was to all art and literature which sane and balanced readers know. But we recognized it as the thing hinted of in the forbidden necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred, the ghastly soul symbol of the corpse-eating cult of inaccessible Leng in Central Asia. All too well did we trace the sinister lineaments described by the old Arab demonologist. Lineaments, he wrote, drawn from some obscure supernatural manifestation of the souls of those who vexed and gnawed at the dead. 
Seizing the green jade object, we gave a last glance at the bleached and cavern-eyed face of its owner, and closed up the grave as we found it. As we hastened from the abhorrent spot, the stolen amulet in St. John's pocket, we thought we saw the bats descend in a body to the earth which so lately rifled, as if seeking for some cursed and unholy nourishment. But the autumn moon shone weak and pale, and we could not be sure. So, too, as we sailed the next day away from Holland to our home, we thought we heard the faint distant baying of some gigantic hound in the background, but the autumn wind moaned sad and wan, and we could not be sure. Less than a week after our return to England, strange things began to happen. We lived as recluses, devoid of friends, alone and without servants, in a few rooms of an ancient manor house on a bleak and unfrequented moor, so that our doors were seldom disturbed by the knock of the visitor. Now, however, we were troubled by what seemed to be a frequent fumbling in the night, not only around the doors, but around the windows also, upper as well as lower. Once we fancied that a large opaque body darkened the library window when the moon was shining against it, and another time we thought we heard a whirring or flapping sound not far off. On each occasion investigation revealed nothing, and we began to ascribe the occurrences to imagination, which still prolonged in our ears the faint, far baying we thought we'd heard in the Holland churchyard. The jade amulet now reposed in a niche in our museum, and sometimes we burned a strangely scented candle before it. We read much in Alhazred's Necronomicon about its properties, and about the relation of ghost souls to the objects it symbolized, and were disturbed by what we read. Then terror came. On the night of September 24th, 1912, I heard a knock at my chamber door. Fancying it St. John's, I bade the knocker enter, but was answered only by a shrill laugh. There was no one in the corridor. When I aroused St. John from his sleep, he professed entire ignorance of the event and became as worried as I. It was the night that the faint, distant baying over the moor became to us a certain and dreaded reality. Four days later, whilst we were both in the hidden museum, there came a low, cautious scratching at the single door which led to the secret library staircase. Our alarm was now divided, for besides our fear of the unknown, we'd always entertained a dread that our grisly collection might be discovered. Extinguishing all lights, we proceeded to the door and threw it suddenly open, whereupon we felt an unaccountable rush of air and heard, as if receding far away, a queer combination of rustling, tittering, and articulate chatter. Whether we were mad, dreaming, or in our senses, we did not try to determine. We only realized with the blackest of apprehensions that the apparently disembodied chatter was beyond a doubt in the Dutch language.
After that we lived in growing horror and fascination. Mostly we held to the theory that we were jointly going mad from our life of unnatural excitements. But sometimes it pleased us more to dramatize ourselves as the victims of some creeping and appalling doom. Bizarre manifestations were now too frequent to count. Our lonely house was seemingly alive with the presence of some malign being whose nature we could not guess, and every night that demoniac baying rolled over the windswept moor always louder and louder. On October 29th we found in the soft earth underneath the library window a series of footprints utterly impossible to describe. They were as baffling as the hordes of great bats which haunted the old manor-house in unprecedented and increasing numbers. The horror reached a culmination on November 18th, when St. John, walking home after dark from the dismal railway station, was seized by some frightful carnivorous thing and torn to ribbons. His screams had reached the house, and I had hastened to the terrible scene in time to hear a whirr of wings and see a vague, black, cloudy thing silhouetted against the rising moon. My friend was dying when I spoke to him, and he could not answer coherently. All he could do was to whisper, The amulet! That damn thing! Then he collapsed, an inert mass of mangled flesh. I buried him the next midnight in one of our neglected gardens, and mumbled over his body one of the devilish rituals he had loved in life. And as I pronounced the last demoniac sentence, I heard afar on the moor the faint baying of some gigantic hound. The moon was up, but I dared not look at it, and when I saw on the dim-lighted moor a wide nebulous shadow sweeping from mound to mound, I shut my eyes and threw myself face down upon the ground. When I arose, trembling, I know not how much later, I staggered into the house and made shocking obeisances before the enshrined amulet of green jade. Being now afraid to live alone in the ancient house on the moor, I departed on the following day for London, taking with me the amulet after destroying by fire and burial the rest of the impious collection in the museum. But after three nights I heard the baying again, and before a week was over, felt strange eyes upon me whenever it was dark. One evening, as I strolled on Victoria embankment for some needed air, I saw a black shape obscure one of the reflections of the lamps in the water. A wind stronger than the night wind rushed by, and I knew that what had befallen St. John must soon befall me. The next day I carefully wrapped the green jade amulet and sailed for Holland. What mercy I might gain by returning the thing to its silent, sleeping owner I knew not, but I felt that I must try any step conceivably logical. What the hound was, and why it had pursued me, were questions still vague. But I had first heard the baying in that ancient churchyard, and every subsequent event, including St. John's dying whisper, had served to connect the curse with the stealing of the amulet. Accordingly, I sank into the nethermost abysses of despair, 
when at an inn in Rotterdam I discovered that thieves had despoiled me of the sole means of salvation. The baying was loud that evening, and in the morning I read of a nameless deed in the vilest quarter of the city. The rabble were in terror, for upon an evil tenement had fallen a red death beyond the foulest previous crime of the neighborhood. In a squalid thieves' den an entire family had been torn to shreds by an unknown thing which left no trace, and those around had heard all night a faint, deep, insistent note as of a gigantic hound. So, at last, I stood again in the unwholesome churchyard where a pale winter moon cast hideous shadows and leafless trees drooped sullenly to meet the withered frosty grass and cracking slabs, and the livid church pointed a jeering finger at the unfriendly sky, and the night wind howled maniacally from over frozen swamps and frigid seas. The baying was very faint now, and it ceased altogether as I approached the ancient grave I had once violated, and frightened away an abnormally large horde of bats which had been hovering curiously around it. I know not why I went thither unless to pray, or gibber out insane pleas and apologies to the calm white thing that lay within. But whatever my reason, I attacked the half-frozen sod with a desperation partly mine and partly that of a dominating will outside myself. Excavation was much easier than I expected, though at one point I encountered a queer interruption, when a lean vulture darted down out of the cold sky and pecked frantically at the grave earth until I killed him with a blow of my spade. Finally I reached the rotting oblong box and removed the damp nitrous cover. This is the last rational act I ever performed for crouched within that centuried coffin, embraced by a close-packed nightmare retinue of huge, sinewy, sleeping bats, was the bony thing my friend and I had robbed. Not clean and placid as we'd seen it then, but covered with caked blood and shreds of alien flesh and hair, and leering sentiently at me with phosphorescent sockets and sharp and sanguine fangs yawning twistedly in mockery of my inevitable doom. And when it gave from those grinning jaws a deep sardonic bay as of some gigantic hound, and I saw that it held in its gory filthy claw the lost and fateful amulet of green jade, I merely screamed and ran away idiotically my scream soon dissolving into peals of hysterical laughter. Madness rides the star wind, claws and teeth sharpened on centuries of corpses, dripping death astride a bacchanal of bats from nigh-black ruins of buried temples of Belial. Now as the baying of that dead fleshless monstrosity grows louder and louder, and the stealthy whirring and flapping of those accursed web wings closer and closer, I shall seek with my revolver the oblivion which is my only refuge from the unnamed and unnameable.
Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Evan. Hi, I'm Will. Hi, I'm Trish. Hi, I'm Connor. And we're going to talk about The Hound by H.P. Lovecraft, first published in Weird Tales, February 1924, written in 22. Um... I really like this story. I, I read, I've read it quite a bit, so I feel like I know it backwards and forwards. But uh, in doing a little extra work, as I thought I should do, I'm like, oh man, yeah, I didn't notice that before. Lots of little things I didn't notice before. Evan talks about this on his podcast yeah. quite a bit about how once you start reading the text, um, it's so packed, it's so full of stuff that you sort of you can talk about it way more than the length of it. But, like, in a real way, like a lot of times I hear on podcasts, people say, oh, we could go on and on about this. And then they, they end the podcast. <laughs> what they mean is we're so, sort of tired. But literally, like, um, uh, I, I was thinking about all the different ways we could approach this. And I have a couple ways that I'd like to approach it. One is just to point out um, the timeline. I know this doesn't seem like a very interesting thing, but it's something I noticed that I'd never noticed before. Um, that he has actually set up um, a period of days throughout. So it, it's actually got two chapters, at least on the... Um, yeah, it's got two chapters. Um, the first chapter isn't mentioned that it's a chapter, right? And then the second chapter appears, and you go, huh. And then there's no more chapters, right? So it's got two parts. And in the first part, there's no dates at all. But we do get uh, two lines. And they're uh, quite interesting, because they're so repetitive. One is, the autumn moon shone weak and pale. And then the next one, a couple of lines down, is, the autumn wind moaned sad and wan. Oh and, oh, and each of those phrases is followed by another quote, which is, and we could not be sure. So it's very poetic in that respect, right? But we're set in the autumn. And then in chapter two, we start getting dates almost right away. It starts September 24th, 19, and then it's blank, um, which was a very popular thing to do, especially in Poe's work. I, it's a whole 19th century thing, right? But Poe did a lot. Um, and then um, on the 28th, uh, uh, well, we, we can infer the 28th because he says four days later, September 28th. Then the next date we get is October 29th, uh, where he says, We found in the soft earth underneath the library window a series of footprints utterly impossible to describe. Um, and a lot of bats. I made, I made note about that. Then the next is November 18th. St. John becomes my mango flesh. I'm, that becomes is my words. Then uh, we can infer November 19th because I buried him the next midnight. Then the 20th, I departed on the following day for London. 23rd, but three nights after that. So you, he's actually set up a whole timeline, which I guess you should do if you're writing. Right? Um, but then he says, and before a week was over, I felt strange eyes upon me when it was dark. So this is November 26th-ish. Uh, next is one evening I strolled. So maybe that's the 27th, right? I strolled along Victoria Embankment. Um, I saw a black shape. Then the 28th, maybe, the next day, I carefully wrapped the green G8 amulet and sailed for Holland. 29th, maybe, the bang, hound, the bang was loud that evening. Almost every scene that's described is set at night, if not all of them, actually. Um, and in the morning, I read a nameless deed in the vilest court of the city. And then 
the next uh, thing is A Pale Winter Moon on November 30th, maybe, because he's showed up in Holland. And then I no- started noticing, like, he starts talking about winter. He starts saying, um, I attacked the half-frozen sod. Um, and uh, there's another line about winter in there. And something frozen as well. And I was like, oh yeah, so there is a a timeline in here. Um, but it's all weirded because the timeline doesn't start getting dates until the second half. So it's almost like he wrote it in two bits. I bet he didn't write it um, with a lot of reviews or rewriting. So that's just one sort of way of attacking a very familiar story to me that I thought was very interesting. Did y'all notice that the the setting of time and change, like, it's obviously no. set in England, right? But I noticed the year was 1912, right? Well, it, in the, in, let's see, uh, depends on what we're looking at, because in the... It, but it, it's before the Great War, right? Uh, yeah, that sounds right. And it's, it's written after the... I, I, I don't know if there's significance there, but it, it struck me that it was set in a particular year, and it was not written in that year. Well, where are you getting the year 1912? What page is that on? Um, let me... Uh, I'd have to do a text search. Yeah, so I, I, I was using, for my searches, the Lovecraft.com website, hblovecraft.com. Did anybody else notice a year? No. No? I, I, I would so certainly it's agree. It's, it's pre-war. It's early 20th century. Yeah. Yeah, they're in the mix. They're in these modernist. I mean, the whole first half. It. it I mean, I, I think there's no timeline there because it's. It seems to be involving years of their life. Yes. I mean, there's the mention of autumn. Um, and then it says overall, it's it's like a whole. They're like their whole youth. It's like it seems. Yeah, I, I see that as many years because they're exploring all these different modernist philosophies and artistic movements. Yeah, and there's. There's a a whole lot of resonances with other stories as usual, um, but I'm very familiar with this because I've read it many times with students. I think so. Um, I would like to hear what you guys have thought of it. If this is your first time reading it, what you think it's about? Because I got lots of ideas. Before we follow up, well, it's with not that, the first time. I, I've got I've got the the date reference, and this is interesting. So mm-hmm. on the hplovecraft.com version. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, I tried to uh, uh, control search uh, 1912. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing came up. I just put in 19, and um, so at the uh, it's 19 underscore, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's at the second uh, paragraph in chapter two, if we want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing about that is definitely in the uh, audio version. I don't know if this was true to any version of the text. Somebody read 1912. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, so I don't know if that's an alteration or so what the deal is. But I think let's that's see. I'm looking at the Weird Tales version. There, there are some typos in the Weird Tales. Um, so in the in the Weird Tales second paragraph, it starts. Um, now, however, we were troubled by what seemed to be frequent fumblings in the night. Um, but that paragraph doesn't exist in the Weird Tales version, so that's not helping, does it? It, it, oh yeah, there it is. It, it does say nineteen underscore there. Um, yeah, huh. Weird Tales just has it as three, four paragraphs, but it says then the terror came on the night of September twenty fourth, nineteen underscore. So, so that's probably like the 
So the, the probably closest to uh, what Lovecraft's intention was would have been 19 underscore. Yeah, well, I think so. Um, but uh, uh, one of the reasons I think that, and I do want to... Oh, uh, why don't we talk about that after? I, I just want to get your impressions about... Who, who here hadn't read this before? I know Evan has. I had read it some time ago. Probably at least... 15 years ago before um and it didn't stick much on my memory because it's a it's really a fairly simple tale as far as <laughs> i'm concerned we'll um, see <laughs> there's a whole lot of uh flowery prose or mm-hmm. not decaying flowery prose <laughs> yes. but um uh n- not a lot happens and mm, it, it's there are things there are a lot of things in this story that are developed in later stories but the story itself is really pretty simple don't yeah the plot things. is pretty simple <laughs> um i want i wa- actually have a few questions about what actually ha- that was another way i was going to ask is like okay there's the timeline what actually happens to these guys what is the quote unquote hound um there's some i saw somebody saying that it was it was uh, traditional Lovecraftian ghouls that we see, like in Pickman's model and stuff like that. I think that that's not correct. Um, yeah, Evan, did I, you I say think, something I like think that? The, the ghouls really developed in at the well. He was he wrote Pickman's model and Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath pretty much at the same time. I mean, I think, and they're they're not the same like kind of ghoul he here. And yeah. that's really where you get the the ghoul. The description there's some maybe similarities, but. Ghouls don't have wings, right? Yeah, well, one of the things that I think we could mistake early on is that the ghouls, he's talking about hes talking about St. John and himself, or herself, as somebody points mm. out. The narrator here is not male nor female. We don't know. Um, although I have reason for thinking he's male. Um, <laughs> Connor, mean, is this uh, your first time? <laughs> given Lovecraft's history, I think... That's not actually my explanation. If this guy were, if the narrator were any but male, that's not the reason I have. But I want to hear what Connor thinks before I reveal my surprise. Um, Okay, so the the first two things I think of is um, is you asked like I think you asked what is the hound? Mm -hmm. Um, What is it? And what I think is the story. The first thing I, I guess is um, I think my interpretation was that the amulet is that. It has a hound on it, and it also has the bat wings, and it mm-hmm. has the skull. I don't think there's a literal monster that's sort of like the hound. I think that animals react to it, like the howling that he hears mm-hmm. is a real hound, whether that's in England or in <laughs> um, elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. It's an animal reacting to it. And the a bat certainly the react, yeah. Think, yeah, um, and I think the the corpse seems to be whatever it is, if it's a spirit, is the thing that actually murders St. John. Um, so, and I think the the title, The Hound, is sort of like um, the way that a bloodhound catches mm, the scent mm-hmm. of something and mm-hmm. chases it. It's like they have this amulet that's like a scent on them, and this creature or spirit follows that scent. And whoever has it, it doesn't matter. Because mm-hmm. it's the criminals who steal it at the end of the story who get killed, so it doesn't. So that's why it's called the Hound. Um, and it reminded me almost a little bit of um, other depictions of supernatural hounds, like 
the Hounds of Tindalos. It's mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. That's what that comes later, are. I think. But yes, absolutely. Yeah. and it's it, it, inspired it, it, by this, I think. Yeah, well, several times. Ta- sorry, several times oh, the, the story uses the phrase "some gigantic hound," mm-hmm. and mm. that, of course, made me think of the Hound of the Baskervilles. Absolutely, which. Um, yeah. uh, the at the beginning of the mystery, at least, uh, they're not sure whether it's supernatural or not. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, one of the most famous lines from the book is, "Mr. Holmes, they were the footprints of a gigantic hound." Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I I almost felt like that had to be deliberate on Lovecraft's part. Yeah, like, I, he's got to have been aware of it. So, I think that mm. that's likely. Um, it's I, interesting it's, to, a choice to call it the hound, though I think it is to do with what's Connor saying, um, it being a bloodhound, because it's more described as a sphinx than it is a hound in the actual. It's the baying that makes us think. But uh, Will, is this your first time reading this? Yeah, it's my first time reading this. Or if I read this, I was like eighteen and like more interested in other things. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm partial to the supernatural reading of it that mm-hmm. Connor has given us, but mm-hmm. I think there's another possible reading here. Please. Um, so, uh, you know, you have this, like, ghoulish guy. Um, <laughs> he's got these weird hobbies. His friend has these weird hobbies. I mean, like, they have a cave. If you believe him, if you believe him, they have a cave where, like, synths come in, and one of the synths that comes into the cave is, like, a freshly opened grave of, like, a rotting person. Um, so this is a, you know, these are interesting people. And I think this is meant to be a very funny story. It is a very fun funny of, story. Like, uh, he's making fun of people like himself on some yes, level, I think. Yes, 100%. I mean, um, so it's not like, you know, those other people I'm disdainful of. I think there's some, like... You know, like he's in a feat intellectual. He's making fun of himself, 100%, and his friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's also, though, lambasting, I think, modernism quite a lot here. Although, I think... He's he's he's, very critical of modernism. He is, and and yet he's engaging it with it here. I I don't know if that's, like, central to what we're talking about right here. Um, the, uh, uh, so uh, here's what I think is going, here's what I think is going on in this story that might be different than the supernatural reading. We have an unreliable narrator who's kind of nuts. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, uh, you know, they do this, uh, criminal act, uh, and you know, maybe he like loses his mind and kills his friend, right? Yep. That uh, oh, certainly occurred to me as a possibility. Yep. And then, and then kills a household full of people. Uh-huh. And then, like, goes to the cemetery, returns the thing, and, you know, this was my last rational act. And, I mean, I thought it was very funny. That was my takeaway yep. from this story. You're correct. Is that it's, it's, like, it's like a goth joke. This it, is a goth it, joke. That's exactly what it is. They, they're goths. They're pre-goths, right? Running around the graveyards at night, <laughs> leaning over the graves and saying, I'm so dismal. <laughs> Speaking of which, the part of the inspiration for it was it was him and Lovecraft and uh, is it Reinhard Kleiner? Yep. Being the old graveyard, and he chipped off a bit of an old gravestone. He took it with him and yep. put it under his pillow. Yep. <laughs> which is pretty hilarious. Yeah, that's in I one mean, of the uh, letters, right? To Weird Tales, was it? Yeah, that's gothy as hell. <laughs> um, I, I want to hear about also the crime. Thing, uh, now that I've like, I, I know I like cut him off, but I, I want to hear about it now. Yep. No, that's why I think I, I don't see these characters because I don't know. Like Lovecraft doesn't dig this art that these guys are into, so 
Okay, he's, he's into some of that dark stuff, but he's pretty hostile to it. His his cultural footing is not. <laughs> he's not at all happy with what's happening in art at the turn of the century. <laughs> he's talking all about he it here. He wants to go back to the 18th century, right? The neoclassicists or the, you know, he kind of dug those people or, you know, the Samuel Johnson, isn't it? He, like, one of his intellectual yep. idols. Who are, the, who, are story about that. who are the pre-Raphaelites? The, this the pre-Raphaelites a, are people who rejected the, basically the Renaissance, you know, I, ideal trying to get the ideal human form and balance and symmetry. So they're pre-Raphaelites in that they're kind of inspired by William Morris, basically the the, the, the Gothic style, I guess, to go back where you know things are just a little bit more uncanny. You know, before the Renaissance came and said, "No, this is like everything has to be balanced and <laughs> human forms have to be like perfect representations of what they look like," like that Da Vinci man right david the sketch or the david mm-hmm. you know and so there's that but there's other movements too like the like the decadence are mentioned here and the yep. decadence are people who say like art doesn't have any meaning at all art should art should be meaningless right mm. and it's not that it's not that art reflects the perfect in humanity it's like art like we copy art more than than we're our, we're, we're our true nature is reflected in art. So, like, you have those artistic movements are saying, like, art should lift people. And that's certainly in the Renaissance. But even some 18th century art has this idea, you know, that art should reflect, you know, the pure virtues of, of humanity in a way. And that's rejected by the decadence. So these trends, they kind of overlap a little bit. The decadence, the symbolists, the pre-Raphaelites, they mm-hmm. sort of, they're all distinct. But they... I don't think Lovecraft liked any of this stuff that much. Yeah, except he's, he's engaging with it here. I want to. I want to. I want to read this section what? that that we're all talking about, so it becomes. I mean, it's, it's it's painfully obvious once you start looking at it through this is comedy lens. Wearied with the commonplaces of the prosaic world, where even the joys of romance and adventure soon grew stale, Saint John and I followed enthusiastically every aesthetic and intellectual movement which promised respite from our devastating ennui. <laughs> so I'm like, well, you can see them on their fainting couches. Oh my God, the world is so, so difficult. <laughs> and then they get the latest yeah. magazine with the descriptions of paintings and philosophy of art. And they say, oh, yes, this is very interesting. And oh, now I'm disdainful again. Of uh, Meanwhile... Um, they're living servantless in St. Uh, not St. John's, the narrator's home, right? A mansion. Um, so obviously rich, but not so rich that they have servants or maybe they're just hiding the, the, uh, yeah, I read that as we're too weird to have servants. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They have money to go on trips to Holland to dig up graves. Right. But then notice what they do with that basement, right? They build a museum. And so I'm going to continue the art section of the story. The enigmas of the symbolists, and they are very enigmatic if you try and understand what they're doing. In the symbol, go to the symbolist Wikipedia entry and look at what's going on. It's pretty interesting. And the ecstasies of the pre-Raphaelites, and these are like quite pretty art pieces themselves, right? Uh, were all were ours in in their time, but each new mood, and this is just so poetic, each new mood was drained too soon of its diverting novelty and appeal. 
only the somber philosophy of the decadence could hold us, and this we found potent only by increasing gradually the depth and diabolism of our penetrations. Now it's starting to talk about how sex uh, porn addiction is <laughs> is a thing, right? Yeah, it's kind of an addiction, mm, isn't it, Jesse? Uh, like, that's what that's you know, what like, they're saying. That first hit gets them a little bit, and then you need more each time. And, and you know, this is, I think he's criticizing the avant-garde idea here. Yes, hundred yeah, percent. You can radically overturn. You can throw over the table of art, create something new, but that just gives you. Yep, and now new, the, and it's interesting for a day. What's the what's the guy who the who did the he goes in he's a French artist and he goes into the museum with his new piece and it's a bidet. <laughs> and he says fountain, yeah. labels it fountain walks Duchamp. away, right? Duchamp, right? That uh, what he's doing there, Lovecraft is doing here. Um the next line, Baudelaire and Huysmans, I I don't know anything about Huysmans, but Baudelaire um, I did a reading short and deep on one of his things, and it's about a poem. It's a it's a poem about a guy. They're walking through the park. I assume it's in Paris. They f- see a dead dog. The dead dog has flies all over it. It's rotting in the hot sun. Things are coming out of its orifices. It's disgusting. And he turns to his girlfriend and says, That's you, my dear, as they're holding hands in the park. And then he talks about how she is just like that thing. They think, what the fuck is this about? And really, it's about the f- that feeling. That's what it's about. It's about that weird feeling, right? So that's when when you read Baudelaire, Fleur de Mal, his poems, they are disturbing. But that's what he's he's taking up. And you know, Clark Ashton Smith is later on going to be translating those poems, putting them into weird tales because they are weird in that respect, and they are disturbing they they give you that weirdness feel right so that's what when he starts that i'm just continue baudelaire and hoismans were soon exhausted of thrills till finally there remained for us only the more direct stimuli of unnatural personal experiences and adventures Uh oh what are they doing it was this frightful emotional need not desire need which led us eventually to that detestable course, which even in my present fear I fear to mention with shame and timidity. And then like, you know, what the fuck is this guy into? That hideous extremity of human outrage? What the hell? The abhorred practice of grave robbing? That's not so bad. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, especially in context, right? Like where like it's a, it's nineteen. 19- Nineteen uh, something. Underscore, right. Nineteen underscore. These guys are robbing a grave, and but like also that's what like the big civilizations do, right? Like that's like the British Museum. Uh, of course, point. of course. Yeah, like they're not like more ghoulish than like like normal like explorers. And notice what he lays it on so thick. The next line: I cannot reveal the details of our shocking expeditions or catalog even our <laughs> partly the worst of our trophies adorning the nameless museum we prepared in the great stone house we were jointly dwelt in, alone and servantless. Our museum was a blasphemous, unthinkable. You can see him like if he's this guy on the bus you're riding on the bus and he's sitting <laughs> next to you, <laughs> sort of keeping you from standing up and getting out. Um, <laughs> he's saying, I'm such a horrible person. You can't imagine the depths of diabolism. And then he looks over at you and like smiles <laughs> because he's enjoying this. Right. And then I start, I started making those notes about, um, other Lovecraft stories that this reminded me of. And the number, you know, Evan, how many of Lovecraft's stories are about art? have art as a, well, one of the I, primary I think, motivating things in it. Well, I, it's not 
quite a lot. Of course, I think Pikmin's model, this That's, one, yep. and the music of Eric Zahn form like a little bit of a trilogy. Oh, there's more than that. Um, the tree that is, about, think, is about about sculptures. Well, and the tree, but the, these three in particular are all seemingly about new trends in art. But right. then don't so forget about the, Hypnos. This one is really modernism. Eric Zahn is like, if you look at how the music's described as best as you can, it's really describing maybe like uh, Stravinsky or something. Like mm-hmm. he heard Rites of Spring and he tried to dis- describe it with a bit of disgust, what he's hearing. And that's kind of what the music of Eric Zahn is. It's like this dissonant and strange and uncomfortable music. So, right? uh, and then what about Hypnos? It's more set purely in post World War One with this this kind of gruesome turn in art, which we read about in that other book, the Scott Poole book, Moistland. Mm-hmm. He yep. talks about that stuff there. What but about what about Hypnos though? Deal not just with art in general, but specifically new art. Hypnos art is about sculpture, right? And his friend, yeah, who doesn't speak. Um, is a sculptor, and they spend all their days doing drugs in their Garrett apartment, right? Um, and then they stand, spend all uh, they spend all their nights staying up late and but uh, astral astrally projecting into this into space, high on drugs, and then they spend their days uh, uh, trying to avoid sleep. And then when the police break into his apartment at the end because he's making too much noise or whatever. Um, turns out that his friend was a bust um, and that he was the sculptor of, right? Um, yeah. There was no second guy, right? It's just him. And if you uh, scroll around in this thing looking for weird stuff, just reading it sentence by sentence, there's a line, and I wrote it on the front page of my notes here, a dominating will outside myself. That's actually what he says when he talks about why he's digging up the grave again, Right. And who was it, Trish, you were talking about, or maybe it was Connor, or Evan, I don't know who it was, was talking about um, him killing uh, the guy who stole his amulet, and a whole family. Okay. Um, There you go, Will. Um, This is another really good example of why it's not so much about race as it is about class in many respects, because who are these Hollanders, right? They're all white people, or at least they're, they're not English, but... They're whitish, right? They're, they're white Protestants. They're Protestants, okay. Yeah, that's fellow Pro- you know, Holland used to be an ally. They're 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 sort of qualified. But if you look at the description of, of the people at the tavern that he stays at, right, the the uh, all over Rotterdam, right, it's it's just as full of disgust, right? Um he it, it, I'll just read a section here. I read of a nameless deed in the vilest quarter of the city where the rabble were in terror. Uh, For upon the evil tenement had fallen a red death beyond the foulest previous crime of the neighborhood. In a squalid thieves' den, an entire family had been torn to shreds. So it's a family of thieves, right? Including the children mm. oh, right. uh, is, the, is the best part of that, right? Right. Um, it's a family of thieves, including the children. I and think, the, I, and I they're think not they're, immigrant thieves. They, I they I are. I think it has to be. I don't think it has to be class, not race, though. In right? this, like in like, this story, it's all about. Uh, there's no nothing about race here, right? The guy. Oh, yeah, who, no. But the the fear of the masses, you know, it contains yes. like it like it contains like the like fear of black people. If you had a servant in that apartment or there, that estate, the manor estate, 
they could be lording it over, but they're so billy, busy impressing each other with their I'm so dark and devious and awful. <laughs> <laughs> and then you start realizing, oh, maybe this guy's like, he's insane from the beginning where he says, St. John is a mangled corpse. So mangled, I can't even tell you how mangled he was. Oh, and he, he said, please don't do it or something about the amulet. So he's not mangled enough that he's like not dead yet. But then he says to avoid mangulation, he's going to shoot himself. At the beginning, he says it at the end, too. Um, this is, this is um, a comedy piece. And it, I know most of you haven't read it yet. But I swear to God, you've got to read The Love Dead. Because it, in reading this again after having read The Love Dead in between, I was, I was like, oh, my God, it's so obvious in The Love Dead. But here it's like a dry run for that because... It it is a comedy piece about these <laughs> these two guys, and think about how many times that happens in Lovecraft, where you got for uh, the statement of Randolph Carter. There's a um, who's the other guy, Harley Warren, right? Who who dies mysteriously, um, and then our statement, our Randolph Carter character is Lovecraft, and that's the same. Uh, weren't you saying that Connor that Saint John was uh, well. Yeah, uh, Reinhard Kleiner. Reinhard Kleiner. Yeah. yeah. So uh, there's there's two things there that I think we should both uh, we should break down both of them because the first one is I was about to I also wanted to bring up the Love Dead because I know that you've told me originally before I read it that it was a comedy piece mm-hmm. and uh, having since read it I still don't know what to make of it <laughs> but it, this this, this uh, story reminded me a lot of it especially mm-hmm. his his descent into more and more depraved um, uh, uh, sort of, I don't know, actions is mm-hmm. similar to The Love Dead. Um, and and something that I was kind of shocked about in this story was actually, I kind of thought of this as more of like a monster piece. It's it, a monster it is story. a monster piece too. Um, but his, uh, his museum, his horrible, creepy museum, I was really shocked to like that they were – I don't know what you call it. They were stuffing human beings. There was taxidermy <laughs> yeah, tax- going on. That and then they're doing it themselves really- too, right? Because nobody's going to stuff a baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. It's that really was actually like disturbing. That's the, why the, it's the, comedy. The, it's not true. Monsters. <laughs> Sorry, I don't uh, I, uh, like. You can't trust anything this guy's saying. Is what I'm saying. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, the description. Yeah. L- 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 listen to the description here. Um, This is on page two of the PDF I put up, um, which is from the original Weird Tales. It was a secret room far, far underground where huge winged demons carved a basalt and onyx vomited from wide grinning mouths weird green and orange light. (laughs) Well, who made those things? Okay, I don't know about that. And then he says, um, and hidden pneumatic pipes ruffled into kaleidoscopic dances of death the lines of red charnel things, hand in hand, woven on voluminous black hang- hangings. So they must have did that themselves, right? Through these pipes came at will, <laughs> they got like a little switch box, <laughs> well, the odors of, of the moods we most craved, sometimes the scent of pale funereal lilies. Mmm, that reminds me of the time we went to the funeral. Sometimes the narcotic incense of imagined eastern shrines of kingly dead. So some spicy smells on another switch, right? And sometimes how I shudder to recall it. And he looks over at you on the bus and smiles again. (laughs) The frightful and soul-upheaving stenches of the uncovered grave. (laughs) 
<laughs> He's so excited. I mean, this is... <laughs> and then he says, this is all repellent and disgusting. I love it. <laughs> right? It's, it's, that's very similar to The Love Dead. In yeah. Way. Yeah. It's... Uh, I can I can definitely see the comedy am, angle. Uh, but do you it, have is there any evidence for thinking that Lovecraft intended this as a comedy, <laughs> or is it just that it is so ludicrously over the top to us um, that we? He had he definitely has a, a sense of, of humor. He has a sense of humor, one hundred percent. It is very dry, but it is hard to tell, right? This, I'm sorry, I can't read this as not comedy. Like, I, I don't understand the reading of this as anything but comedy. <laughs> I, 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 once you see it, I think it's pretty well, hard I, not I to see some, it. I mean, some there are definitely gods who would take this 100% seriously. Gods? And, I mean, <laughs> byronically tortured people have been, yeah. you know, making scenes of themselves But it's cosplay, right? So They're... I think it's perfectly possible that yeah, he that's... meant all this... You know, uh, perfectly <laughs> sincerely. <laughs> I think you can be both, right? I mean, look, I have a I have a skull on my desk. I like having a skull on my desk. Um, it's a plastic skull because I'm not insane. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I I think about death a lot, and I laugh because what is your other option? You cry. I mean, think if you if you look at Lovecraft's backstory, it's clear he's working out his stuff very deeply in everything he's writing. And one of the things you can think about is like, oh, your 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 dad died under mysterious circumstances. Your mom told you a story that sounds like bullshit. What could you do to find out? Well, you could go dig him up. You gonna do that? No, gentlemen don't do that. Mm. So what do you do? You do your best. <laughs> You think about it. I mean, that that's the real reason people are interested in Lovecraft. It's because he did a lot of thinking about whatever it is, right? Whatever topic yeah. it is. And he's doing thinking here about art. The most interesting authors, I think, are the ones... The most interesting authors are the ones who are doing exactly that, which is they are thinking through their own kind of issues in their art mm-hmm. because... You can read into it very deeply because there's a lot in there. It's very dense. Super dense. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I, the reason I, I wanted yeah, Con- I Connor, I, the reason I wanted you to do this show, um, I think I suggested The Hound, is because um, of a line a little farther down here about the museum. Let me just read it and then see what you can do with this. Statues and paintings there were, all of fiendish subjects and some executed by St. John and myself. A locked portfolio bound in tanned human skin held certain unknown and unnameable drawings, which it was rumored Goya had penetrated. Uh, sorry, perpetrated. Mm-hmm. Penetrated is earlier. But dared not acknowledge. So I, I saw your, you did a show on Goya on YouTube, right? I didn't know that much mm-hmm. ab- I didn't know that much about Goya before I watched your thing. I had seen some paintings and stuff, but... Um, Goya's is one of his subjects here, right? This is why he yes, brings it in. But did you know who originally it was? He changed that name. No, it wasn't originally. It was Clark Ashton Smith. He uh, was dropping a little course. reference to Clark Ashton in um, in yeah. this one. He was, and it was the same thing. He just changed the name. But uh, Goya is a good person to put in there because Goya did do, you know, the most. Well, I don't know. The most horrific paintings, you know. 
Um, yeah, they're, they're of paintings of gravity. of very dark subjects, um, and you could laugh at them if you're looking at them. That's not usually the way mm. people go. Um, yeah. No, I, I don't. How could anyone laugh at, at because, looking at Saturn devouring his children? Because it's, uh, it's la- that a cry, uh, I'm right? Irony poisoned. Sorry, mm. I'm irony po- poisoned. <laughs> so, like, like yeah. I like I associate uh, I associate Saturn devouring his children with like people putting it in funny memes. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. It, it still it, has the to me. It still has the potency of uh, like when I looked at Goy, when I look at Goy's uh, like artworks. So um, uh, yeah, I I like the idea though that Goya wouldn't even own up <laughs> to having made these right. artworks because they were so bad. That's so that evil, actually, as opposed to funny. Yeah, yeah, and every every detail, right? The 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 portfolio that's bound in is in human skin. Um, every detail, you know, about what their secret layer underneath their library is all about it, it's about like showing how decadent they are right and that's mm. that is um it's it's kind of i keep thinking about evan's statement that he's and he's right about that the klingons are cosplayers that are larpers right <laughs> just that's their <laughs> life now right and they were born into it it's like if you're born into a, a, a family of bikers you know your dad was a biker your mom was a biker you grow up, you know, fixing motorcycles. You wear the jean jacket. You wear the leathers. You drive around, and maybe you don't stay in that. Maybe you get a suit and tie, and you work at an office. But you were a biker, right? Mm. Um, and uh, that's that's what I'm thinking. Like these these guys are goths, and maybe he's so he's so into the Byronic uh, irony of it all that he. He even has an invisible friend, right? I mean, that is that is a theme that's throughout. Um, uh, that's even uh, as Mr. Jim Moon pointed out, I think, on our podcast about um, what's the rein- reanimator, right? That uh, the narrator there mm-hmm. is always talking about his friend Herbert West. Um, maybe there is no Herbert West. It's it's made explicit in Hypnos, but really, it's. It's this guy who's so good off the deep end that I mean it's so funny. It starts with that, with that. I'm gonna Saint John's Saint John is a mangled corpse, and I'm going to shoot my shoot myself in the head. That's how it starts, and that's how it ends too, right? It's a like a boom. He gives it away at the beginning, and he boom. He gives it away at the end. Um, But all the stuff in the middle, that's the part he enjoys. And, and that's the same way the love dead is a confession, right? It's, oh, mm. let me tell you about all the horrible things I did. And, oh, let me give me more, a little more detail about that. Yeah. <laughs> the guy, that was the I, second. I, I think there's a bit more to the, I mean, like the museum. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a, I want to kind of go off here and put the museum. Um, this It's underground, right? So mm-hmm. this is a kind of a Lovecraft trope that somehow civilizations can tell their story through arts this, this is like it, it's practical for lovecraft when you know you like in the mound or at the mountains of madness or nameless city you go down 
dig down, you need to tell the story of the civilization you've encountered. Well, you don't know their language, and there's no one really around to tell you. So the art reveals the narrative of the civilization, right? And that's what you have here. Notice they create some of this. He he creates at least one piece. He mentions, yeah. You know, some executed by Saint John and myself, but largely this is just from the outside world. He's just bringing it in. It's a museum of. It's a black of museum. The turn of the century culture. It, it's if this is the same way like you have the the this is civilization of the elder things carved in bas reliefs on the walls, right? Of that civilization. This mm-hmm. is the record of of the civilization Lovecraft's living in now. Yeah, it's it's very um uh, in that way you can read it as not a comedy piece, um and I think you're supposed to be able to read it both ways. Yeah, I, Obviously, I, I most people didn't read it as a, I, I a humor piece. A piece. I agree with that, but I do think there's a deeper critique. Oh, um, absolutely, and uh, th- that's where that's where his that's where he uses the power of art to critique stuff. Right, like there's a a poem I did on reading short and deep that is about uh, a guy who's so in love with a girl that he swears he's never going to drink or smoke or gamble ever again, right? And then he's going to write this most amazing poem to describe how he feels about the girlfriend. And, it, and at the end, he's, he's like, ah, I, I, I last about 18 hours. <laughs> now I'm smoking, drinking, and gambling again. <laughs> and then there's a, a subsequent uh, stanza or so that is explaining how this, con- how this whole poem came to be made. And it's like this guy came to basically Lovecraft. And Lovecraft did this as making fun of a friend who was in love with somebody, right? He, he took the form of the art and then used it as a weapon to discuss the subject of whether it's smart to fall in love with girls or not, <laughs> right? It's not like um, it's only the one thing because he's really good at making it. Uh, oh, he, he has one about a mermaid, basically, that's like that. And it uses it in, the, in an effect where it's beautiful. And then if you read it without the final stanza, where he makes it even more jocular than the the straight-up part, it's not clear that he's making fun of a particular sort of moaning over girls, <laughs> falling in love romance thing. It's because he's he has it both ways. He he is the master of it, that's why I don't need to have it, Right. And I, I I just think it's so that's the richness. But um, there's another thing we didn't talk about yet, and I know I think it's mentioned in one of those letters that uh, Connor you were asking about um, the influence of Poe on this because um, it, it's fairly Poe-like, and everybody talks about how a lot of his early stuff is Poe-like. But uh, I found some specific examples uh, in here that are these are just lifts from Poe. Um, do you all notice the Poe effect? Yeah, yeah, I noticed a few knock at my references. chamber door. I saw that. Yeah, there's a knock at the, the chamber door. There's also a sound at the window. Um, mm-hmm. So it's there's it's. An, he mentions. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say there's there's actual uh, there is actually a turkey vulture, uh, aka a raven. <laughs> um, although it doesn't say turkey, it just says vulture. Um, he kills it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, he mentions the red death. Right. Yep. Descending mm-hmm. on the house of people in Holland, and mm-hmm. he also he mentions uh, he calls the coffin the oblong box. Yep. Sorry, another story. Box. Yep. Which is another one. These so guys specific. Reference. These guys read Poe, if not 
the mm. author, right? Is there there where they're picking up these Poe lines? Obesence, that vocab word is from the ra- the Raven, not an obesence made. He says about the Raven. Um, yeah, it, and it's uh, to me he's transferred the beautiful dead lady into uh, a nice um, churchyard. <laughs> The, the churchyard itself, you don't want to dig up, uh, although Poe has a story. Annabelle Lee is actually a necrophilia story. <laughs> you didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most beautiful Poe poem, the one you want to have all the kids say, it's about a guy who's going down every night to be with his bride. <laughs> so every night tide I go with my bride. Um, and he calls her a bride, even though they were never married. So he, you can make your inferences. Anyways, um, the, he's transferred the beautiful dead woman into just the the architecture, like of this house that they live in, <laughs> and into the um, into the graveyard itself, the churchyard itself. Um, so uh, I think the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast make fun of uh, the line about. It was in the Dutch language, and it is a pretty funny line. Um, but it's it, that's just like the tip of the comedy iceberg here, because I think the whole the whole point of this is is he's kind of like working out <laughs> this stuff out of his system, because he he does much more subtle work later on, except under that uh, Love Dead pseudonym, right, where he's not subtle at all. Mm. But yeah, super cool. You but well on the on the note of Poe, right? Like Trish, you're asking, is there any um, real evidence that this is a comedy piece, or mm-hmm. that it has comedic elements? I think, um, like uh, you said before, Jesse, about he's sort of working Poe out of his system in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, a lot of people say that this is a kind of Poe pastiche, like it's so over the top, um, drawing on Poe's style. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's almost making fun of itself. Yep. Um, and I've, I had no evidence for this, like no real evidence, but it seems like I know Lovecraft um, seemed like he was a bit frustrated by the fact that he couldn't depart from the style of Poe, um, that, he was, that uh, he was trying to develop his own style, but it, it was so rooted in Poe, he felt like he couldn't get away from that. Mm. And I wonder whether it's almost a play on itself where he's frustrated by that. So just make it over the top, almost make it so over the top that it becomes something else. No. Yeah. I have no evidence to <laughs> suggest that that's the case, but um, it, I almost get that sense from reading it because it is so uh, purple. The prose is so purple. Do you know um, the Ray Bradbury story called Usher two? It's part of Martian Chronicles. It's about a no. Okay, it's it's kind of similar to the Hound in that it's about a guy who who's flees Earth because he's. It's been a while since I read it, but he flees Earth because they're they're banning all the naughty words and they're they're you know censoring Twitter or whatever. <laughs> so he flees Earth and he he makes a black museum on Mars and he fills it with Poe and Lovecraft and Robert Block and all the things that. Um, <laughs> you're not supposed to talk about and all the ghoulish, you know, scully, uh, purple-draped, um, stinky-flowered <laughs> stuff that you you yeah. associate with funereal <laughs> stuff, right? And and he does it because 
he's super influenced by Poe and Lovecraft, right? And and it doesn't. Why is it set on Mars? Because he's he's setting a whole bunch of stories on Mars to sell it to Planet Stories and such, right? It's not uh, it's not because um, it needs to be set there. It just needs to be set elsewhere so he can take it away. Um, and what's funny is Poe does the same thing. The Fall of the House of Usher is kind of a comedy piece. It's so over the top, right? If you read it as a straight up thing, where is it set? Uh, not really clear. It's not England exactly. It's not in the United States. Um, the things that happen are, it's very, I keep thinking about it being, this is like a symbolist piece, right? This is, this is Lovecraft actually engaging with these, these kinds of art things and then using that tool to make fun of them. Mm, yeah. I would agree with that. I think, um, and 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 what's funny is I I think that that's true of all of his stuff. So I I heard there was a uh, Evan. You should know about this. I think I heard it on your podcast. You said something about how um, Lovecraft rejected modern or postmodern. I don't know. It's most modern uh, styles. Well, modernism. Of modernism, and uh, and yet he's yeah. super modern in his style of writing, right? And we think of him as not that way, but that's just because of the way he artificially constructs his sentences and his vocab. But what he's doing with his writing is a kind of modernist thing. So when I... I who, yeah, but he would never like say his work is... Like, no, no, he doesn't want to be labeled like that. that there, like it's like meaningless. Because he's conservative, he says, right? I mean, he yeah. says, I'm so conservative... But uh, some, uh, I guess it was Bobby Deary was tweeting about how he's writing about transgender operations, right, in the 1920s or whatever. He's just interested in everything. So when he says, I'm a conservative, it's it's kind of like a defense technique a lot of the time. Because he is engaging with almost everything he's, you know, anything under the sun he's, he's willing to engage with. He says, sexuality? I studied it. <laughs> <laughs> and he'll give you a he'll give you a, like a dissertation. There's the vulva, and the penis goes in here, and and he said, "Okay, wait a second. Is that all you have to say about it?" And it's like his way of dealing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Evan, you sent mm-hmm. before the podcast. You're trying to start a, a a thing, and you're not supposed to do that. A picture, of death and the grave digger. Um, a symbolist. I wasn't art. trying to start a thing. I just wanted to make sure. We were going to talk it about came it. came up. Yeah. Because I was searching these uh, different movements. So this was... Uh, where is it? Symbolist it's, Wikipedia oh, it's entry. Carlos Schwabe. Right. So he's not mentioned here, I don't think. But he's one of the symbolists, right? Right. We've so got we've got... in the grave digger. We've got a, a, di- so grave, a grave digger in the grave. Digger. Right. Go for it. Yeah. So there's a grave digger. He's in the grave. So he's like up to his neck in the grave and then he looks up and there's a female figure in with wings uh all in black and that's death so it's death in the grave figure. and then all around it, it's it's it winter you think of the hound because the final scene here is him in in the grave right, right. and and it in the the snow is like there's purity right and she's wearing all black but she's also holding like a green what could be an amulet glowing in her hand right yeah. it's probably magic or mm. something but uh, this is a 
a symbol. And like, if you look at the picture, you just go on Google and type in death in the grave digger. You look at the picture, there's all these wheat stalks growing out of the edge of the grave in the middle of winter. Explain that. I think that symbolic, oh, actually, right? Yeah, good point. It's symbolic. And so you're figuring out what all these symbols mean. It's like that's it's it's a way of of doing stuff. Like it's a way <laughs> it's a uh, so uh, I I heard a really bad podcast this morning on a Lovecraft explainer. And uh what they don't get is that it's not that Lovecraft is racist that that's that's not why he's popular. He's popular because, despite the racism, he's talking about really interesting, true things, like the size of the universe meaning something to us, the age of the universe meaning something to us. And so Cthulhu isn't a plushie. He isn't a monster under the sea that's actually dead. (laughs) He is a symbol, right? He is a symbol. And who are the people who are greatly affected by it? Who are the people who see it? It's the artists. It shows up in their dreams. So this is a dream story, right? It, it's it's a waking dream. He went to that place with Reinhard Kleiner. They went to see Poe's grave or whatever it was. And they chipped off a thing. And he said, you know, um, this is not reality. I don't live in England, but I like to live in England. I'd like to be a lord. I would like to have servants, but I can't afford them. So there's that. And also... Um, Let's be real here. If I'm going to go to Holland, I'm going to have to go to the graveyards because that's where I go when I go to places. I visit the graveyards, <laughs> right? So he turns it into a thing, right? But it's ultimately, it's really, it's very, sim- it's symbolic in a certain sense. All of the, like the astral projection, that's bullshit. That's never going to happen. But the point of doing astral projection is to get us thinking about the size and depths of the, of the universe. It, that opening line. I think that, his conservatism is also a reaction to this, Jesse. I and agree. He says this explicitly in some of his letters, like, like the reality is this universe is unknowable, it's vast, we're insignificant, and the solution to that philosophically is for Lovecraft to kind of conservatism. It's like to retreat to something solid. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's the line they always quote from. From the Call of Cthulhu, right? And they did it even in that explainer podcast. Um, and it's the line about um, retreating into a new dark age. Let me just bring it up here. Ah, yeah, it's the opening paragraph. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. I think when people read that, like they did on this podcast this morning, they're just hearing the words. They're not actually understanding what he's trying to do here. So look at the next line. We live on a placid island of ignorance. What is he talking? That's a symbol there, right? In the midst of black seas of infinity. He's not talking about how big the oceans are. He's talking about reality. The size of the universe. And it is not meant that we should voyage far. This is the part that Paul doesn't like. That that book that uh, Aurora, that Kim Stanley Robinson wrote, that pisses people off who are big science fiction fans, it's because it's saying, this is bullshit. We... We're never going to go faster than light. I've understood Einstein's theory. And it seems like there's no way to get around this. So we're not going to go far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little. Um, so this part, it, 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 sounds, it sounds like he's doing something here. And he is. But there's multiple layers. 
but someday piecing together of together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the dark from flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age think of this as the personal reaction right when you start clipping things out of the newspaper you start pasting them in your book you say oh 10,000 children died in yemen today here comes the political part, Trish, right? Huh. <laughs> and then you turn the next page and you say, okay, we seem to be blockading Venezuela for some reason. Oh, there's 400,000 people starving to death there. Oh, okay. I got those two numbers reversed, Venezuela versus, right? And you put those things together and you, stay, you start coming to conclusions that there's this vast creature out there that's, you know, like a vampire sucking out all the... Uh, deadly juices of, I don't know, good juices of the earth. And it turns out it's, you know, the United States or something like that. That's what he's doing here. But it isn't a specific one thing. It's all of the things. That's how he deals with. And so this seems like a really simple story, and it sounds nice with all that repetition, right? I I made a list of the rep... uh, This is a repetition list here. Um, This is just all the words with wind, woodwind... That's one of their musical instruments. They have everything in that museum, right? Uh, night wind. We get night wind again. Autumn wind. A wind stronger than the night wind. Nightmare. And then if you start doing night, it goes even stronger, right? It, it nights everywhere in this. And it's not... Um, it doesn't only mean one thing, right? So uh, that's what I'm like saying. This is super deep and super rich. And you can come back to it. And, like, I, I did the thing on Leng, right? Um, I, I searched out all the Leng places that he talks about Leng. He talks about Leng a lot. It's that Eastern Orientalism thing, right? Alien it was in, alien it indeed was to all art and literature, which sane and balanced readers know, but we recognized it as the thing hinted of in the forbidden, let me tell you about this book I got, Necronomicon of the Mad Arab da- Abdul Al-Hazred, the ghastly symbol, uh, sorry, ghastly soul symbol of the corpse-eating cult of inaccessible Leng in Central Asia. Uh, so this Leng place shows up in a whole bunch of stories, right? It's a fictional place, just like uh, wherever, who, uh, Will, you should know this. Who's the guy uh, with the kung fu skills that had a show on Netflix and used to be a Marvel character? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's like Kunlun, but Kun Lun. what it's like is Shangri-La. Yeah, Shangri-La, Kunlun. Right, these, um, yeah, mm. yeah, like Lost Horizon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what do they do there? They eat corpses. Right? And this Gross. is a symbol of that. <laughs> but This is the first mention of the Necronomicon, by the way. Yeah. And- and it, and mm-hmm. it's it's an over mentioned in the nameless city right but it's, it's so over the top for this right it's so over the top that of course they have a copy <laughs> because mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's what you running joke right in Lovecraft that everyone has read this thing that's supposed <laughs> to be locked up right? <laughs> yeah <laughs> I uh, I um well I agree very much I think. Uh, you have a very perceptive um, interpretation of those initial paragraphs of the Call of Cthulhu. Because I think that's Lovecraft is at the start of the 20th century, science, 
is becoming this big thing that is accessible to the masses, mm-hmm. understanding just how big the universe is. The electron microscope being developed, being able to see this minute world beneath. Yeah, and that's what From um, Beyond is all about, right? It's about micrographia. Exactly. And it's the the horror of that, of both understanding how big the universe is, how insignificant we are, um, and then also, you know, that, you know, scientific uh, knowledge, letting the average person know that they're covered in these tiny little bugs. Right, and they're inside of you. They're crawling all over your eyebrows and swimming in your ears. Eyeballs. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I think that's, uh, and, you know, when he says, like, you said the artists in are the first people who are affected because they're the most sensitive. They pick up on these things um, and picking up on this change in the world. Um, in their dreams. Yeah, I would agree. I'd agree very much with that. Um, and uh, yeah, and I think you get like the museum and so on in this is a bit of a similar thing in the terms of like, I suppose, like you're saying, uh, Evan, about it's a comment on art. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah, I get that as well. Um, I think that's, I feel like that's kind of like the main thrust of this particular story. Um, is that statement at the start with ha- was, is how they come to the place where they are, which then leads them into the monster story. But really it's about, these people who have gone too far <laughs> into um, their artistic, you know, delicacies. <laughs> they're creepy. Well, in they're, a way, it's the West pre- itself that's going mm. too far, I think. Yes. talked yeah. about the trend of we, Western art. But what's the solution? Like, I have to bring this up because I always talk about this in my, mm. my read-through of, of Lovecraft is the solution is burn the museum down, hide the amulet, you know, bury it deep. You know, burying it deep is... Uh, the solution for Lovecraft treating all the time mm-hmm. right now yeah, I can call forgetting Hulu, the like one of the last edge. lines is I pray I have the strength to just burn this whole what's it like a box right of stuff you know so, yep. so no one will see he burns the he burns yeah, in this he burns the museum you know or, mm. and they're worried about it being found right because of all the gruesome yeah. things they've got in there um, I want to I want to tell you about a thought I had about Dagon because it's a right around it was published right around the same time as this maybe like that was the first one and this is the second one in Weird Tales I can't remember. Um, in any case, Dagon um, ends with a suicide in one interpretation, right? Um, him jumping out the window. Um, he says, "The window, the window, that hand." He's, is he talking about his own hand writing <laughs> writing this all down? I think he is. He might be talking about the hand that's, you know, reaching through the door latch, you know, to open up. It's both, right? Um, But I hadn't thought of it this way until I was, I don't know, walking around this week. And I thought, oh, it's a dream. It's another dream story. Because what happens, he's on the boat, he's in the middle of the sea, he falls asleep, he wakes up. And he's in this muddy earth place. And what's it smell like? Real bad, like the bottom of the ocean. I did a reading short and deep earlier this week. I think that's what brought it out. A story by Frank Belknap Long, or Belknap, I guess is how he's supposed to be pronounced, called The Sea Thing. And I noted uh, only afterwards that I had forgotten why I had 
read the thing in the first place is because Lovecraft praised two stories in a particular issue of Weird Tales, and it was um, this one and another. And I, I processed the C thing, and I read it, and I'm like, I wonder why I read this. <laughs> um, and it turns out um, that it has that description of the, of the things, the, the bedroom, well, not the bedroom, the, the cabin on the ship smells like uh, the sea in, uh, you know, the uplifted continent uh, all this muck, right? It's, it smells like the bottom of the ocean. And it's about a, it's a very weird story. <laughs> but it's about basically a, a vampire fish that's also a man, that's also a, one of those lampreys, right? And he's like mm-hmm. draining the blood of the people on the ship. Um, it's kind of a retelling of that scene in Dracula, or that chapter in Dracula, where we find out how Dracula got to England on board the ship and he killed everybody, draining them dry, right? Um, so Lovecraft says, oh, the, the sea thing strikes me as the best tale. <laughs> and um, his d- explanation is like, it's good. <laughs> um, and and then I, th- I realized that it also, um, I think that story influenced The Canal by Everell Worrell, which is also about sort of a vampire uh, water creature. Um, and this guy's sort of compulsive... Uh, connection to it here the that quote a dominating will outside myself um that's often how i you know when i'm writing my dreams down which i do a lot on twitter um i i struggle sometimes to explain who and what is happening because the characters are all me in a certain sense right um but also, none of them are me. And sometimes I don't feel like I'm in the dream at all. Like, I'm watch- I usually think of it like I'm watching a movie or I'm watching a TV show or I'm watching a play. But sometimes the, those things slip. The other becomes me or I become the other. And that's how I feel like what he's, this is, that's why this is a dream story. And that's why when he somehow ends up back in the boat and somehow back in, you know, I'm talking about Dagon again, back in San Francisco, he, his solution to his problems is to take opium, right? And Lovecraft being the teetotaler, this is like something I deal with too. Like I started off young being afraid of drugs and I'm still afraid of drugs, even though I shouldn't be afraid of drugs. Um, I'm afraid of drugs. I'm afraid of alcohol. So I'm a teetotaler, even though I didn't sign up for anything, right? I basically don't do any drugs. It's because I'm afraid of them. So I have to come up with explanations. I've always had to because people offer you drugs and alcohols and such. And you, uh, uh, being a human being, you, you want to be a part of the group, right? So how do you deal with it? You come up with an explanation. Lovecraft talks a lot about drugs. And in this one, the drug that they have is kind of an addiction to pornography in a certain sense, like this art, artistic pornography. And it just goes too far (laughs) and it causes what they always say about drugs, right? Overdose. (laughs) Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And what does he do? He ends up killing himself. It's kind of like a warning story. He he wrote, uh, didn't you cover that story, Evan? A really weird story uh, by Lovecraft about alcohol and how dangerous it is that he wrote for a friend of his. Because his friend said, old I want to... Yeah, old yeah, old bugs. That's, that's right. Uh, 
a very weird story because it's not meant to be published like uh, in Weird Tales. It's it's like a it's just something he wrote as a sort of a way of explaining to a friend why he shouldn't drink alcohol, and it's like set in the future. <laughs> it's a really weird way of going about saying no, don't don't drink. It's not a good idea. <laughs> Um, because it, it goes into the depths of depravity, right? And and that's something else Poe writes about a lot. Um, so he is, when he, I feel like what happened was he read Poe and he said, oh my God, this is my guy. And I felt that way when I discovered Lovecraft. I really liked Robert E. Howard. I thought he was doing amazing work. And then I heard about Lovecraft, or yeah, Lovecraft through Poe, through Howard. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll try this out. And then I'm like, holy crap, this guy really gets it in a certain sense. And I have nothing in common with him, right? But it's because he's got some <laughs> weird fixings in his head that he has to deal with. <laughs> and he deals with them by thinking them through in these weird stories or poems or whatever. And so that's why it, it feels like it's not one thing and it's not the other. It's because it's all symbolic. I think, I think mm. that's what's going on. Well, your um, comment sort of about like, uh, well, when you're talking about your dreams and you're not necessarily one person in the dream um, and this uh, narrator talking about an, an indomitable force is like... A dominating will outside myself, yes. Yeah. Um, what do you think about the relationship between the two men or between the narrator and St. John, whether, whether the narrator is a man or not, um, is... Like you said before, it's something that is kind of repeated throughout mm -hmm. its a theme. I got the sense in this story that they're pretty much equals. But in other stories, it seems as though one is the leader and one is the follower. That's kind of well, let me, in this story as well. Yeah, This story actually says St. John was the, uh, yep. the leader. It does say that, but I agree. It is also, they seem a little more equal. In Randolph, mm. the statement of Randolph Carter, he says, he dominated me. Right mm. yeah. Now here it says a dominating will. Right, it's not the same thing. It's not he dominated well, me, but it, it that one was literally a dream. I do not know that this one was. It sounds yeah. like it was it was a waking dream, right? I um I don't think this one's. I mean, I don't know what this this story is meant to be a dream story or not. But um, I think the the idea of this dominating force and whether and as uh, Will said before about is this uh, unreliable narrator. It's if you wanted to get really psychological about it, you could say that inventing a friend who dominates you, or sort of not dominates you, but um, impels you on, is a way to externalize yeah. your own emo emotions and motivations that you can't grapple with by acknowledging them. You're like, well, I was. Yeah. It's almost like disowning your responsibility by Remember, somebody right. else. In Deep Space right. Nine, uh, Garrick talks about his friend Elam. <laughs> Right? Mm. He talks all about his friend Elam. And then we find out eventually Elam is his first name. Right? And how mm. he, Elam got him into so much trouble. Right? Um, mm -hmm. And we just had that in our last story, right? By Bars and Hroon. Yeah. Denying that he is the other guy. And, and it's, it's playing a little, a little game there, right? But when you, I, I gotta think. I'm, I was never a goth. I, I, I didn't really get into any of that stuff. But I gotta think when you're in the bathroom and you're putting on the makeup, <laughs> you're retouching it, I guess, because you're not wearing it while you're sleeping. I don't know. I've never done it. Um, you're, you're putting on the black jacket. You're choosing to buy the the jeans with the 
or maybe you're shredding the kneecaps on the jeans. I don't know what the look is exactly. You got to know you're doing a costume, a kind of cosplay, a kind of thing. And if you don't know that, um, that's weird. I think. I think yeah. goths are really into that. The are they are they into thinking about I'm doing this, or are they just doing it? Well, I mean, they put on cost like elaborate costumes. I think it like varies from like goth to goth, right? You have like. <laughs> You know, like somebody who's like, I'm like not very self-conscious about my life, but this is like a nice fashion. And you have like, yeah. I think that like goths tend to be like pretty like, like tortured and introspective. Right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like, these are, uh, like uh, you know, like we said this was a goth joke because it's like, uh, you know, kind of a self-aware story. It is. Uh, yeah, I think it is self-aware. And I feel I feel like and what, there was another group um, that came after the goths that are kind of look like emo. Is that a slur? Uh, no, this isn't emo. This is not emo at all. Okay. No. Okay. I don't. Uh, I don't no, really know yeah, we about. We can talk about emo sometime. This okay. Isn't that. This is not an emo story. Is what you're saying? <laughs> uh, no. No. Okay. No. It's goth. Okay. Uh, this is too cheerful for that. <laughs> mm. uh, I mean, uh, the, 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 we get the goths in in Mary Shelley, right? It's, it's yeah. That's a very it, goth. Story. It's a goth story. Like, all of her stuff is very goth. Yeah, and. That Poe picks that up and he says, "I love the shit. <laughs> I think it's wonderful." Yeah. <laughs> and he says, "Um, um, uh, and love it, love it, love it." Um, and he revels in it. And uh, when Lovecraft read Poe, that's what he did. And I, I, I sent you all. I think my direct message you my uh, tweet a little six sentence story I did as a cartoon. Um, did y'all see that? Mm-hmm. It's called the Haverhill yeah, Incident. So I picked that from. I picked that from a list of story uh, story ideas from Lovecraft's common Lovecraft's commonplace book. I did number fifty six uh, in the book, and it was basically just it said uh, um, book should not be written read. Someone reads it, um, something bad happens, <laughs> right? And so I took that and I, and I took six vocab words from the Hound, which I do with my students. We pick vocab words that are hard write sentences to show their meaning, right? And we then turn that into a story. And what I did is I just took two Lovecraft things, right? The statement of Randolph Carter and the Hound, where two guys go to a graveyard and dig up some something, and then something bad happens, right? Um, and I just used a lot of vocabulary from Lovecraft, like sanguinary, right? Instead of saying blood, because that's a more funny vocab word. Um, and it feels to me a lot like a Lovecraft thing. That's me doing Lovecraft pastiche in the way that he's doing Poe pastiche, but he's way better at it. And I'm doing it more for comedy, where he's also got like uh, his his problems are not my problems, but I appreciate that he's really trying to deal with his problems. Very interestingly, like I think why racism is so in his stuff is because he's conflicted about it. Because it's a real thing to him, but also it doesn't really make sense if we're all dust, does it? Mm. To worry about like your genetic bloodline and all that stuff, it doesn't really make sense. Whether you're a chalk white giant, Anglo-Saxon, or an effeminate Celt, <laughs> yeah, or a, a Dutch Dutch rabble, right? Yeah, yeah, like yeah, they're probably drinking gin. It's terrible. Yeah, or nautical Negro. It doesn't really matter if we're all dust and uh, the, the cults that he's always into, right. It, they know something that we've, we in the mainstream don't know. 
That's why he's interested in it. He's interested in everything. Everything under the suns. And, and mm. so he's One dealing with it. One of the things that struck me about this um, is that you have your decadent, debauched, uh, uh, <laughs> disreputable, uh, rich heroes or rich protagonists, or maybe mm-hmm. it's just one protagonist. Yep. Um, uh, and, you know, so many of his stories talk about the rabble uh, or, you know, various pejorative terms for other races. And he's so afraid of the other, but the state to which he aspires, i.e. white, uh, upper class, rich, all of the stories I can think of that have, you know, rich people as protagonists that are written by him have them uh, being horrible people that you would not want to be like. That's so, uh, Wells' uh, story, but it, it, it's not even white. It's like Teutonic Anglo-Saxon, right? So he, he's down on the Dutch here. He'd be down on the French, too. He's He's down on... The Italians. Right. He's he, down on there's one Spaniard that he likes because he has an iron grade beard. Other than that, what he aspires to be uh, rich and cultured, all of those protagonists are, if anything, worse than than the rabble. It's mm. interesting. Kind of interesting is the rabble always is is right in these stories. Yeah. This one too, because there there's a line in this story something about the local Dutch peasants like knowing there's something wrong with this graveyard right saying kind of suggested don't go there that's they're the ones who always carry on the the real traditions that's yeah. also why they're dangerous because they know the rituals they've been passed on and and if you think about like there's a celephaeus right that's about a guy who i think it's celephaeus or maybe it's the white ship one of those ones where there's a guy he he used to be rich right and i think that's why they don't have servants it's because they're not rich anymore right um, they used to be rich, just like Lovecraft used to be rich. He was born rich, right? Or at least uh, semi-wealthy, right? Well-to-do, at least. Yeah. Uh, and and then something bad happened. Uh, I, by the way, I was thinking about this the other day when they were talking about color out of space. Um, the, the something bad that happened was an investment in, like, a dam. <laughs> um, and it's color out of space related. But anyways... Um, mm. Something bad happened. All the money money's gone, and they have to move into a small place. And all he wants to do is get that those riches back, rebuild the family estate, preferably in England. Right? Uh, uh, he'll do Ireland if if uh, it's a, a St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> There's a story, the Moon Bog. That's that, right? Um, but yeah, go go back to England, rebuild the family estate, um, and then what goes what goes wrong? Everything goes wrong. Right, <laughs> so in the case of I think it's the Celephaeus, um, the character who sh- later shows up in Dreamland, uh, D- Dream Quest of Anon Kadath, um, he uh, he actually walks by his ancestral estate that's now owned by our, our nouveau riche, right? So it's not that it's it's a white guy, it's that the mighty have fallen, right? This proud line has fallen, and he ends up jumping or walking off the cliff in his sleep. And yeah, he's alive and a king in in the dreamlands, but his corpse is floating amongst the you know, the waters on the beach below. And so when we think about him being, you know, uh admiring the rich, it's because the, he he's trying to get back that which was lost, right? 
in his head he still is I, well yeah i mean he I uh, that's what thing the, to say but, no yeah. absolutely his suits thing right always having to dress a certain way it's kind of mm-hmm. like uh, i once i once was on boats so i still think of myself as a sailor i once used to ride horses so i'm still a cowboy right the cowboy mm. life is a noble life and I, I know this because I can see it in myself, this sort of thing, right? I was like, well, yeah, Jesse, you're not a cowboy, are you? <laughs> I'm not hanging out on the range much, are you, for a guy who's a cowboy? But don't label me <laughs> is the way we deal with it, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, we, we can get really worried about the, the racism stuff, which I think there's almost nothing in here that's of any interest you know, it's just a guy looking snootily down <laughs> at some peasants, even though he's a fucking psycho, <laughs> goth, whack job, yeah. killing his friend if his friend even exists and digging up graves and <laughs> bullshit. That's uh, yeah. So he's a he's a wreck as a human being. <laughs> but that's also not the only part of the story. Right. So, yeah, I mean, his disgust for for um, immigrants is well known, but. Uh, those immigrants include the Irish, right? They're not, it's not always, uh, somebody, I I didn't even know how to respond to it on Twitter. It was, somebody said, um, I really like Lovecraft's stories, but he's definitely racist, and I want to say that, and he's he's mean to people of color, and I'm like, depends on what color, because he doesn't like white people from Eastern Europe either, right? He doesn't like, like, as soon as you start thinking of it through the racist lens, you're actually, you're actually in that period, because these things are not real in our world, right? It's, um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know a single person who's a Lovecraft fan, as in they read the stories, who is racist. I know that there are I racist never, people, but I've never met a racist Lovecraft reader. I never picked up on it when I first read them for a really long time until I understood more about the rest of his life. I can so, and uh, you know I can see it, but when I was like. 13 or 14 reading The Call of Cthulhu, even though I saw those things in there, I was just like, it's just a cool story. Yeah. Um, but what, what made it cool? That's the question. It wasn't the racism, right? Sorry. It wasn't the racism that made you say, hey, no, that's cool. No, you didn't even notice it. No, it was, it was the giant monster in the underground, underwater sea. Right. <laughs> that was cool. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, and I think in terms of the classicism point of him being very classicist, this might not, I don't really have very uh, intelligent opinions about this, <laughs> but I, at least in my um, thinking about the history of Australia, mm. uh, the idea of white people is, I think, a relatively recent idea. Oh, yeah. It was like, uh, there was um, very, uh, a lot of people were very racist towards um, migrants in from like you know the 50s and like obviously there's a lot of that in australian history but what's interesting is that it was like basically anybody it was the irish yeah the greeks right the, uh, my big yeah. f- fat greek wedding has something about that right and the, uh, yeah the oh, italians yeah. um i think there's a yeah. an, uh, italian actor from australia or italian ethnic uh, uh anthony so anyways a really good italian <laughs> I, I, I he has an italian last name he's an australian and it's like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, these stories are. This is the uh, when I was a kid, um, uh, it was East Indians. Anyone from Pakistan or more importantly India 
was super racist against. People were super racist against. Just before me, uh, before my era, it was uh, um, uh, Iranians. And it's because mm -hmm. those are the people who are coming in, moving into the neighborhood. The latest, yeah. And, and, and now, I, and that's what it's all the cops been. here, all the cops, <laughs> they're all, um, I'm, I'm overstating the case, they're either all from Quebec or they're, um, they're Indian. <laughs> and it's because they're good jobs, right? <laughs> stable jobs. Um, I mean, it's not greatest job, but it's, it's a good job and they have the immigrant work ethic from their parents. Mm. Because you're yeah. coming from a shitty country where we want to improve. We're going to instill this in you. You're going to get ahead. You're going to get a stable job. Mm. And I think uh, in terms of like Lovecraft's um, his classicism and his racism, it's more so anybody who's not the old money like me. I think that's what it's more about. Um, not necessarily... Uh, more is not necessarily about skin color or anything like that. But he makes these kind of massive exceptions, right? So, what's his mm. best friend uh, by letters is Clark Ashton Smith. I don't think they ever met, right? But he yeah. can't go on. He goes on and on and on and on and on about how amazing. And he almost put him in this story. Clark Ashton Smith is. Everybody else is like, yeah, he's okay, I guess, right? But Clark Ashton Smith isn't wonderful because he was a white guy. He was wonderful because in his art. Uh, Lovecraft saw something special. Yeah. And, it, and so he'll make it, and it, it wasn't because he was rich, because he, he was not. He grew up in a tiny dirt shack, right? Wooden mm. shack. So it, 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 he does, um, Sonia Green, right? Yeah. She's, uh, she appreciates, she appreciates what he's doing. She's financially able to support this weird industry of fanzines and whatever they're called, and he makes an exception. Mm. Because she's one of the upper-class ones. She can see how things really are. We aesthetics appreciate. He, do, he He's really afraid of that part of the thing that... I mean, I'm overanalyzing, but I think he's really afraid of, of what his dad did. You know, consorting with hookers, getting yourself VD, uh, getting drunk, doing things you shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking so. at my own yeah. stuff. Uh, see why? Why am I afraid of drugs? Because they're dangerous. Why do I think that? Well, it wasn't just because the government and uh, Ronald Reagan's wife told me. <laughs> it's because in my own life, I saw people who uh, had problems with drugs, or I pre I thought that the problems were caused by drugs and alcohol and that sort well, of thing. That, I always thought that was. Lovecraft's reasons for having uh, this fear of madness was of course, was... of course, and yeah, the madness here is such a thing in his family. Is so it, it's not it's not the normal kind of madness because he's, the the main character is already mad right at the beginning of the sto beginning of his life. As far as w what is his explanation for why these two guys did these things? No explanation. Mm. Why did they make a black museum? No no explanation. What trauma? They're bored. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So that's the enemy they're, they're part, bored. right? They're not adapted to the Star Trek people. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, they. they uh, but I think I think there's uh, that's 
there that's the one explanation that is sort of in the universe. I mean, that's what they literally say, devastating ennui, right? But what's the actual explanation? Um, if you're goth, I think it wasn't just like you're walking down the street, you saw a goth guy and said, hey, can I be in your club? I think there was probably a motivation. I don't get it, but I think there's a motivation. You're dealing with your trauma creatively. Right, right, right. Mm. That's why Lovecraft is a goth. Yeah. He's a goth at heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. in a three-piece suit. In a, a three-piece suit. <laughs> suit that's seen better days. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, like a, what do you guys think a, of... Uh, a, oh. I was going to say, wearing a three-piece suit that's kind of, like, raggedy, I feel like, is, like, a form of being a goth. He, it's his armor, right? <laughs> yeah. That's how he de- he deals with everything through being a gentleman. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very romantic. And notice uh, when he's, you know, if, if somebody, if some black person wrote him a letter, uh, I mean, I don't know if this ever happened, um, he wouldn't say, fuck you, you, you uh, nigger, or anything like that. He would say something like, I'm very delighted to have your correspondence. Let me help you in the following ways. Answer your questions. And it's because the gentleman part is sort of his persona. And then he's got these deep, deep racist ideas that came from somewhere, probably from his family. I think that's where most mm. of them come from, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've, li- I've uh, read some of his letters and definitely his family... Uh, <laughs> We don't we don't see much well, from mean, their point of view, but they seem to be pretty America, racist, right? Like it's it's not like his family were unique racists in. The no, country. that's no, the not thing, right? Unique racists, but definitely were racists. But the reason they think people say that he was uniquely racist is because he talked about it, and he's still being read. Whereas when we read Poe, we never think he's racist because he doesn't <laughs> talk about it, right? There's one black character in all of Poe. And that's not the focus. It just happens to mm. be because it's in the South or something, right? And and yet we all know he would fight on the South side of the war if he had lived. We all know this mm. because of his weird romanticism or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we know this? this? Because it's it's built in. But we never think that's that makes him racist. Of course he was racist. I'm sure he was racist. It'd be weird to think he wasn't racist. Hmm. Well, I don't know about that. I have not studied, but I mean, abolitionists get critiqued as being a bit racist these days. You know? Abolitionists. Look at, if you look at like, uh, yeah, well, they people like Garrison. They kind of sideline black leaders in the movement and stuff. So historians yeah. will sometimes mm. pick on them too. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, 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 we're we should do this for us people, right? We're back, and they they did exist. Well, those were like the free soilers who said like the West should be for free white labor, essentially. So they didn't want to see the expansion of slavery, mostly in part because they didn't want to see the expansion of black people, in other parts of the country. I mean, there were some anti-racist in the movement, <clears throat> obviously. Let me ask you like, all: but most of those were like black activists. What color black. is the hound? Black. Of course, I don't know. I don't know. of course, no, uh, it's black. Any other colors uh, except for? I have a little problem. I, I sometimes conflate the thing in the grave as being the hound, and I don't think that's correct. I, I, that's what I thought. It, it is or isn't the hound, right? It right. doesn't matter. Well, sometimes it's described as white in the in there, and we see its bones, and they talk about how beautiful they are, and how the bitings and the skull or whatever. Um, 
but uh, right, it's referred to as a black shapeless nemesis. Um, but the jewel itself is, or carving, or whatever it is, the amulet is green, right? Yep, yep. Mm. Green with well, envy. Kind of suggest they summon something, right? Because they have the amulet and they light candles around it and they read something from the Necronomicon. And that's when the bad stuff happens, right? It's not just digging up. Well, they stuff. heard the sounds right away, right? In the graveyard. That's before they, they yeah, that could play just be with a dog, the dog, though. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, they over uh, they over dramatize it all, right? It's very. Um, the guy who. The narrator who is writing this, presumably right before he shoots himself. Um, <laughs> who is he writing it for? Um, right before he shoots himself, he's writing this. He he, he put a lot of uh, poetic devices in <laughs> to make it better, I guess, to make it more aesthetic. But um, to me, I was thinking about how it's called the Hound, but everybody knows Lovecraft likes cats. He's not. He he did write like one poem about a dog, and dogs show up occasionally, usually as the bad guy in a Lovecraft story. But he wrote several poems about cats and uh, stories about cats too. It was just a, he was a cat guy, but I was realizing also that this is a lot like uh, the Black Cat by Poe, um, mm. which is about uh, a guy who goes too far with alcoholism. Um, he loves animals, and the cat comes back to haunt him, right, from something he did. There's no amulet in there, but there is a unreliable narrator who says it's all because of that cat but actually it's and then he also blames it on the drink and then he sort of if you read it carefully and I, I did a reading short and deep on it so I did um, if you read it carefully it seems to me like it's kind of um, it's designed to be a, a, another character like like a, a Wells character or most of Lovecraft's character basically a horrible person who is getting jollies while in prison by saying, I'm, I'm crazy. Um, it wasn't me. I'm not responsible. Um, she, you know, the reason my wife is dead is because of that damn cat. And the alcohol, yeah, that's the ticket, the alcohol. And so it's like an anti-alcohol screed. And it, that's really hard to notice uh, in, until you start thinking about, like, noticing. It's all, a, all about... The, the black cat appears on a hogshead in a in a bar after he says he's not going to drink anymore, or implies that he's not going to drink anymore. He becomes more stable for a while. He burns his house down. It's like it's, so. There's a lot of parallels, and so I, I can see why people are saying this is a Lovecraft pastiche in a certain sense. But he's doing his own thing with it. There there is no beautiful dead woman here. There's a beautiful dead corpse <laughs> or two. Speaking of uh, doing your own thing with it, did anybody listen to the Beyond the mm, Pale mm-hmm. adaptation by Stuart Gordon? Yeah, directed by Stuart, uh, Stuart Gordon and starring Barbara, what's her name? Uh, Crampton? Crampton. Right, she's a famous also, for Lovecraft movies. I, um, I should just look up who wrote it because somebody wrote it and I should we should acknowledge them. Right. Uh, Be, Beyond the Pale, The Hound. Um, so they changed aspects of the story. Um, made it more sexual. It <laughs> that's definitely yes. Well, that's the Stuart Gordon's thing. Isn't <laughs> yes, it, it is, uh, and it's fun. Uh, I think yeah, it certainly is. Uh, I think it's Dennis Paoli is the uh, yeah writer is Dennis Paoli who wrote it. So um, so he uh, 
added a lot of things. And some of those things were, for instance, um, I thought it was cool that um, since this is the first story with the Necronomicon in it mentioned, um, uh, Stuart Gordon actually draws on the Evil Dead version right, of the right, Necronomicon right. that has the human face on the front, right. which I thought was a cool little addition to the mythos in a way. Um, Bound uh, in human skin. Also, like that yeah. Goya portfolio. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. And, um, uh, sorry, was it Trish? You said it was like they summoned something? Or who says that? that? See, before, that was not before me. the Necronomicon's mentioned, they, they seem to be doing some kind of spell. Yeah, yeah. In, um, in the Stuart Gordon uh, adaptation, they sort of do that. I think mm-hmm. towards the end, he's so freaked out because the Hound is a literal monster in the Stuart Gordon adaptation. There's no ambiguity about it. It's something, a physical presence that is uh, coming at them. Mm-hmm. And um, he gets so freaked out, he runs down into his uh, little museum <laughs> and he like prays at one of the altars that they have there. And he's like, almost like so overcome and fearful. He's just like, oh my God, just save me from this thing. Whatever, whatever, you know, not necessarily praying to anything in particular. He's just so freaked out that he's doing that. Um, there's a bit more of like a ritual aspect to this story in that adaptation, which I think helps it flow for a uh, sort of audio drama. Yeah, um, it would have to be more narrative uh, driven yes, the way, yeah. without that third character. And notice in the adaptation, our unnamed narrator is always called Old Boy, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't get a name. So uh, St. John and Old Boy, and, and then Barbara Crampton's character is there to... <laughs> and a, a surprise spice to the flavor, um, decadence, etc. That Lovecraft would never explicitly. Re- I mean, he 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 knows about the body parts, but he's not interested in describing them. Right? <laughs> he probably wouldn't have approved of this adaptation. It's also awesome, <laughs> definitely I don't think not. Lovecraft would have approved. <laughs> no. Um, On the other yeah, hand, I, um, it, it, I think it worked pretty well. Uh, it's got. Um, it's got a that sense of humor. It's a different sense of humor than the one we're going for in here, but it's all. It also incorporates the one that I guess I, I was saying was my thesis that this is a comedy piece. Um, they explicitly take it as such, right? With with the way it's put together, but it it was. I thought it was pretty good. Um, I, I do want to point out that in this story, um, he does pray. He prays over the grave of the thing that the. the the ghoul they dug up, uh, sorcerer or wizard or whoever it was, who was their equivalent from 500 years ago. Um, and he, he's, and you, it's the same way. He doesn't know who he's praying to exactly. He'll pray to anybody as long as he gets to live, right? Mm-hmm. Well, he, he also prays over his... He sort of prays over um, St. John, right? He does a diabolic ritual. Yeah, are we talking to, in the... Uh, uh, adaptation or in the original? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm in the original. My bad. No worries. I'm just trying to find that spot. It's uh, it's right after St. John is killed. Um, he's like, I did a little... It was like so, it was something that St. John had enjoyed doing. I, bur- mm. I buried yeah. him the next midnight in one of our neglected gardens and mumbled over his body right. one of the devilish rituals that he had loved <laughs> in the... <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like uh, it's somebody I heard a podcast. Oh, maybe it was that one this morning. They heard Iron Maiden and they got the 
ca- the album cover and one of the graves on the front was H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> it's doing little Iron Maiden lyrics over the grave. <laughs> it is very biker or uh, goth, sort of. You're in the club. You wear the, the costumes. You say the magic words. And we, all, we pour out a little beer. Or, or in Lovecast Grace, it would be like uh, drop an ice cream cone or something on his, on his grave. <laughs> or pour one out or scoop one out for old HPL. Yeah. That's really silly. Mm. By the way, I also, um, uh, Trish, your recommendation of, was it Roddy McDowell's reading? Yes. Mm-hmm. It was uh, really excellent as well. I really was. Um, did he do all of how much Lovecraft? I think he did a couple. I don't think there's a that many of his. Um, it he was did like the a the outsider as well. Yeah, I think it's like a, a two cassette release or something. Mm-hmm. Mm. I wish he had done more because his uh, he he. I think his voice is very much in line. Yes. With uh, Lovecraft's um, sentiments, I suppose, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or is like semi aristocratic. Uh, uh, Martin Rato is the one we we use. I. I like also him. Very good. He's good. Um, um, but he's also very straight, very flat. Um, but he's got a nice gravelly voice, and he pronounces all the words correctly, which is the main <laughs> thing I like. <laughs> mm. Gravelly voice, <laughs> pronouncing all the correct word, words correctly. That's that's very important to me. Roddy McDowell um, pronounced Saint John as Saint John. Sinjin, like yes. Sinjin, yes. which is a British pronunciation, which ah. I don't know what Lovecraft... Lovecraft probably would have said Sinjin because he was... He, he was such he, an he used, yes. Yeah, he yeah. used the U in Color Out of Space, right? Because <laughs> right. King and Country or Queen and Country. Um, yeah, that, that, that is something uh, everybody should listen to Evan's podcast on Lovecraft because he's really good at it. And one of the things that I thought was, it's like you know, if you listen to a podcaster and they have things that annoy them about somebody, you know, something they're doing. What really pisses Evan off is his anglophilism, <laughs> which is like, you're, you're a grown man and you're, you're saying, long live the queen. There's <laughs> <laughs> something wrong with you, bud. But... <laughs> That, that's some Klingon shit right there. It is really pathetic. And like, do you think his mom is saying that? I don't think so. I think that's something he came up with on his own. It probably pisses his mom off. It's like dumb. <laughs> it is dumb <laughs> because he's embarrassing them at parties, right? If he, but he would. I don't think he would. Oh, he would say that to his friends. He wouldn't say that to his mom. It's funny. I, I'm sure his friends were like very accepting people. I think they're a lot like my podcasting friends. Because um, they that may have occurred to me. Yeah, I, I I seriously think that because if you read a lot of books, and you're interested, you get excited about stuff, especially in amateur press. That's ridiculous, mm. right? Nobody nobody in the mainstream cares about this shit. They only care about Lovecraft Country TV show because it's on HBO and that's premier. What they call premier television, or mm. uh, prestige Main television, stream. prestige, right? Oh, it's special. Um. Yeah, I'm that paying for it. Yeah, <laughs> the color out of space with uh, with um, uh, Luke Cage. No, not Luke Cage. Nicholas Nicolas Cage. Cage. But he's named after Luke Cage. Is that right. the last? Yeah, yeah. No, that that's the cool part about Nicholas Cage. But my point yeah, is, is the reason yeah. they're quoting that movie mm-hmm. in this doc, you know, explainer, is because it's a recent movie. 
But there's like been five adaptations of the color out of space. Why did they choose that one? Because that's the prestige one you may have heard of. That's the mm. one that you know. It's not. It's not about the weird. I don't think Nicolas Cage is a prestige actor. No, no. But it's the it's the current one, right? You know. Okay. If you're right. going to talk about Lovecraft right now in 2021, he, what are you going to do? You're going to yeah. do Lovecraft Country, and you're going to do, and then they did that cartoon Lovecraft Howard Carter. It's the worst thing you've ever seen. It's unbelievably bad. It's like it's supposed to be a kids' cartoon where Howard Lovecraft or somebody uh, has a pet Cthulhu. <laughs> really <laughs> bad. Really, it makes no sense. It's just a cash in. But you know, you don't do your research. You don't, you know, whatever. Um, well, I, they didn't do their market research because kids <laughs> would not be interested in it at all. Well, um, maybe my mom comes home and says, uh, Plushy Cthulhu. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was also a comic book, and I picked it up because it was on free comic book day. It's really fucking bad. Okay, yeah. Yeah, just I'm like shocked. useless. <laughs> um, I, as I think we're coming to the end, and I don't want to forget. I forgot to tell Will, um, you need to listen to my friend, my dead friend, Bill Holweg's show called the uh, Jake Sampson Monster Hunter. Jake Sampson Monster Hunter. Yes, I, I think I was telling Connor about him last week. I downloaded. You might have. It, t- you told me about someone dead recently. Yeah, I got a lot of dead friends. Into Howard. Oh, I, I, I have a lot of dead friends. Let me tell you about how their graves look. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you tend to collect those as you get older. I do. I, I'm collecting dead friends. Um, <laughs> I keep them in a black museum under my apartment building. Um, my dead friend, uh, Bill Holweg, uh, a Texan, ended up killing himself, probably very much like Robert E. Howard did. Huge Robert E. Howard fan. Um, he was the writer and one of the characters and the editor. He was basically every, every person except for a couple of the actors who made the thing, this audio drama. Um, and it's a, a bunch. Uh, I was thinking about it because Roddy McDowell's famous for um, his work. I'm pretty sure he's famous for his work in um, uh, uh, Planet of the Apes. Isn't that what he's super famous for, Trish? We lose Trish. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm Planet of the Apes. Whatever. Roddy McDowell. Isn't that what he's famous for? What? Who is? Roddy McDowell. Planet oh, of the Apes. Um, I'm, I'm looking it up. Um, oh gosh, he's been in so many things. <laughs> Roddy. Certainly, uh, yep. Planet of the Apes was one of the most popular. Um, uh, where where he where yeah. he played the sympathetic yeah. scientist. Yeah. Um, but uh, he's been. <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio. My mom's, I arrived at my mom's house this morning and uh, there was like, thought birds were having sex or something it was probably a murder rather than than sex but uh this the consensus seems to be it was a cooper's hawk uh killing a northern flicker but uh it was it was pretty noisy and then afterwards i went um uh to dump the compost out i went over and looked and there was like just a couple of feathers uh you know like under fluff feathers 
and no blood or anything, but uh, I'm pretty sure it was a murder rather than a, than a yeah. lunch or a sex or whatever. Yeah, I was wondering about that um, <laughs> when I saw the video. I was like, what exactly is happening? <laughs> it looked like. Yeah, it could be either, like, right? <laughs> yeah. Because the, whatever the bird that was doing the killing was, it was just sort of standing up on top yeah, of the other one. It was like, I'm standing on your neck here. How do you like it? Yeah. I'm, I'm plunging yeah. my claws yeah. into your into your throat. Is it good for you? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> no, oh it God. wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh How's it going, um, Evan and Jesse? How you doing? Good. Sort of. Uh, it's, it's morning for Evan. What time is it for you, Connor? Uh, it's about 1 p.m. Right. So you're a little farther east. Mm-hmm. So you're more oriental than any any other place that I've talked to, I think. I mean, Me? I know, I, yeah, because you're farther east, right? Uh, possibly. So it's a scary Evan, you're, word. You're based in China, aren't you? Yeah. Oh do, oh, do they only have one time zone for all of China? Is that right? Yeah, they're crazy that way. Ah, fiat. Just, Interesting. Yeah, so um, yeah. May, maybe China does stick out farther east. I, I can't really picture it in my head. It's all Beijing time, of course. Uh-huh. Mm. Let's it's see. It's all capital time. Uh, which is farther east? Australia or China? It's definitely Australia. I just view, right? China would be farther east from you if you're going east. You just walk east. You take Australia first, right? <laughs> List of countries by easternmost point. China's farther west. Russia is the farthest east. Yeah, like I just pulled up Google Maps. And New I Zealand's the second. China's further east. Yeah, and then Australia. And then China is after like Indonesia and Japan. That makes sense. I still don't see how it's farther east. It's like if you, Jesse, started walking. I get what you're saying. I'm just saying we divide, put the divider line down the middle of the Pacific Ocean, right? I guess Hawaii's farther west than, than, um, what's the one, uh, Korean students always go to for vacation? It's, uh, like, uh, Guam. Is it Guam? Yeah, I think it's Guam. Um, that's far, that's either farther east or farthest west, depending on, where you put the dividing line, right? I assume that's where the dividing line is for the east and the west. Yeah, maybe with time zones. I don't know. Yeah, there's there is a, but I wasn't even thinking about time zones. I'm just thinking like, um, yeah, obviously it's farther west as well. But we don't have this problem with north and south. You start walking north, and eventually you're you're walking south. I guess that's true. It's it's because it's the Europeans who came up with all these terms, right? That's true. It was like the what's that emperor on the on the palace in Vienna looked faced east said that's Asia. <laughs> it was a, I forget who said it. Someone like in the 18th century or something. Mm. Mm. I was thinking I, I uh, Emperor that Norton, Norton but history course. <laughs> that's the only emperor I recognize is Emperor Norton. You know, but uh, Connor's too young to know who Emperor Norton is. I think. No, no, I don't know that. <laughs> but Evan, you should know him. He's he's maritime, sort of. He's a San Francisco guy. Emperor uh, <laughs> Emperor Norton was like an emperor. He he declared himself emperor. Oh. Um, and yeah, entrepreneur. Um, 
<laughs> he's a Civil War vet, homeless man living in San Francisco uh. and started issuing his own currency. And then the restaurants would like would take it to feed him. Cool. <laughs> yeah, was a real character. Emperor of the United States uh, took the secondary title Protector of Mexico after Napoleon III invaded Mexico. Seems reasonable to me. Mm-hmm. No, when I googled him, it came up with businessman as <laughs> his profession. So I was like, oh, he's not. Yeah. He was in a way. Yeah, he's issuing his own currency, and people are taking it. I guess that's um. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd take it. I'd like, <laughs> right? yeah, that's an awesome souvenir. Yeah, you pro- I wonder if you can get, you can buy that stuff. Does he qualify as micronation? <laughs> I, 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 I do Whatever. Geography. I mentioned the micronations, uh-huh. just kind of for fun. What's the like one? Yeah, um, the contrapublic. Yeah, there's I one know. off the coast of England that used to be like a drilling station or something. I mean, they're kind of ex- some are more real than others. Like, what's the one in Copenhagen? That's like a real. Yeah, there's uh, there's some in Italy like too. Jokes or like the Contra Public one, like tourism, right? Or something. But it's like this. Um, I think Asgardia is interesting because it's actually trying to establish some kind of principles. Did you say Asgard? Asgardia. Where's that? Just a second. Uh, there's a couple in Australia, actually. Oh, really? Um, uh, but not not official and not yeah. recognized. But they're indigenous um, sort of areas where the indigenous people are just for like you know we're we're out of this Australia. Yeah, that seems reasonable. Yeah, and they have like their own driver's licenses and etc. And local government. Sorry, my exploited the economy slave. <laughs> my food for the day. Ah. <laughs> I hope you tipped them well if that's allowed. They don't tip here. Oh yeah, two RMB I think for delivery. Well, it's oh. dangerous because these guys are like hitting pedestrians and shit. Yeah, mm, I mean scary. it's bad for like public safety. It's bad for everything. These guys, they don't stay on the roads. It's like, I mean, a little bit late. It's like they can't feed their kids or something. Yeah, uh, Mice is out. She's uh, through the sidewalks. Not gonna join us tonight. Anyways, Asgardia is a uh-huh. space nation. It's kind of an internet thing, but oh, they're, okay. they're trying to raise awareness about okay. like, making awareness. sure space isn't militarized or privatized. Uh, too late with that. Ooh. Space yeah, Force beat them but, to uh, it. But some of the micronations, like the one in uh, in Christiana, I think it is, in Copenhagen, it's actually like a... Basically well, the Vatican the is one. I mean, that's the Copenhagen most obvious one, right? Governing. Well, that was for, I think I know what you're talking about. This was the one where um, it was partially for the purpose of um, drug decriminalization, yeah. where you can sort of go there and uh, buy whatever drugs you want in a semi-legal fashion, but you won't be ever arrested for it, and, and various other things. It's sort of like a, we just concentrate the chaos in this one area. As far as I know, that's my understanding. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm in favor of it. Let's do it. But it goes all the way back to the Maroons, you know, and the runaway slaves in the Roman Empire. Everything's tri-racial oh, really? isolates with you. <laughs> well, I've been doing all this love crap. I love that's it. All- <laughs> uh, did you?
you guys see my, uh, I tweeted something pretty ridiculous. Um, I do these, uh, uh, it's like a null prize prizes. Uh, you know, answer this question when a null prize. Oh. Um, and one was, um, uh, I did a podcast on a book, a novel back in 2012. It's a famous science fiction novel. And we, uh, just got, I uh, just edited up the audiobook. I'm putting it in. And, uh, it's, it's, uh, win a null prize if you can guess which one it is. And I gave a hint with the cover of a book. But the book is not the important part. It's the book number. Did you guys see that? I thought it was so clever. <laughs> of course, nobody got it. But there's a lot of smart people out there. So if, if people had seen it, they probably would have, you know, if enough people see anything, they pretty much know the answer somewhere out there. And it basically, it was, you know, ace books put like, um, uh, numbers on the top left hand corner. And, um, mm-hmm. I just looked up the one for the main character in the book and it was D503. Um, that's an ace book, D503, unrelated to the book in question. But I'm like, ha ha, I'm so smart. Nobody's going to get this. And of course, nobody did. But now I'm kind of pissed off because I wanted somebody to get it. And it was, um, it's We by Yevgeny Zemyatin. Ah. Which is a really good book if you haven't read it, Connor. I haven't, but I'm interested in, um, like, uh, that sort of. Eastern European science fiction. Yeah, it's um, it's very very interesting because it's it's so much like um, 1984, but with more Brave New World, and it precedes both of them by a hell of a long time. Like how long? Uh, 1921. It was written. I think published 24. So Ooh, cool. Very early. Wow, that is very early. Yeah, and it's first published in English. Apparently, um, it's almost um, even preceding. The Russian Revolution. So where was? I mean, I suppose that. No, it's not. It doesn't fight. precede the revolution. It's no, no, it doesn't. But it, it almost does. Yeah, almost. <laughs> um, um, but it's very which, futuristic still, too. Like if you if you read it, it's like wow, that's like this is still stuff we're dealing with, and it sort of deals with them in different ways than 1984 and Brave New World does. And it's kind of better in a, in certain ways. It's not as iconic for quotes and stuff like that. But mm. I think people have you read it, Evan? Oh, uh, he's yeah. eating his DoorDash or whatever the Chinese equivalent of DoorDash is. Yeah. I feel yeah. like I uh, know I I haven't read it yet. Oh, it's cool. You should check it out. I'll take out the ebook. Um uh, audiobook's coming out in a couple weeks, but I did that one with um, I've, been a lot of, I've been reading a lot of US history lately. What a surprise. <laughs> Plus, I got a. I'm going to print out a book tomorrow on impotence, cuckoldry, and adultery in the 18th century. <laughs> Sounds like a. Grad scholars are doing the work that needs to be done. Yeah, it's hilarious. There's so many questions about this. Thing. All right, this is the uh, the paper book I scanned, um, and I just it just showed up on LibriVox. So I just, I, as soon as I saw that, I slapped it together with uh, all the things you need to do. The narrator doesn't say her name anywhere in it, which is a bit unusual. But um, it seems like an okay reading. Mm. It's only six hours, so um, 
it's definitely it's it's i think everybody should read it given its its stature is is pretty impressive yeah Sounds good. So the audiobook's already up on LibriVox. Uh, the audiobook is up on LibriVox, but I'll just send you the link address, and then you can download it. It's already on the website. It's just not, not um, oops, it's not uh live yet. Hmm. Uh, it's gonna be six one six. So copy link. See, that would be the smart way to do it. Just go and I should have figured that out on my own. There it is. This. Oops. So that's a good a good read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, six and a half hours. That's I mean for a, a big classic book, and it it should have bigger status. But I guess it's um, you know they never did a movie version. The CIA never tried to push it as a, as an anti uh, Soviet m- message somehow. I guess that was more uh, 1984 uh, Animal Farm, huh? Mm. Then, uh, well, maybe if he was American. Um, yeah, Evan would good. Evan would cover it. <laughs> well, I, maybe the CIA would push it if if I was written by an American. Well, yeah, American. but they they pushed Animal Farm, and that was not written by an American, right? Uh, that was Vonnegut. Am I wrong? No, that's um, Orwell. Oh well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All oh, right. And yeah, he was British. So, okay. He was British. Fair yeah. But they're mm-hmm. part of the the complex. Well, so th- it's interesting that this guy who wrote We, um, uh, wrote it, and clearly was tapping into these ideas. Like, there's obviously like this. Just from looking at the Wikipedia mm-hmm. thing, it's all about the bureaucracy and control mm-hmm. and one state. Um, but they hadn't, I mean, had that been, had those kind of things been established prior? Because I know Orwell drew on. It's really interesting. It may be the first sort of thing like that. I mean, we, we see that in the one that we did, uh, uh, The Coming Race. It's a dystopia, but it's supposed to, you know, it's also satire, whereas this is not a satire exactly. Mm. Um, it's more, it's, it seems more like, uh, real science fiction and it's predictive, uh, fearful, you know, look at human nature. Mm. And like the main thing about we is it's all about transparency. So your, the walls of your houses are transparent. Um, mm. so everybody can see you having sex, uh, except during the one, Oh no, it's not, there's like one hour where you're allowed to, sex hour or something, where you get to shade, put the, pull the shades down. But every, everything else, mm-hmm. like your writing is being surveilled, and they, they talk about like one day your head is going to be clear, so we can just see right into it, right? And, uh, wow. it's done by like, I think the main character is like an engineer working on a rocket. Um, and so he's not, you know, running the system, but he can see it all sort of, going around it's very interesting mm. should uh, i should tell will about it because this is also his sort of thing i think although maybe he's not so dystopian i don't, mm. I don't know if he wrote anything else this uh the author of zem yatin yeah yeah uh, eric rab can tell me about this book and so we did a show with him back in 2012 when he did uh, 
SFFAudio podcasts. I've never read Player Piano, but I guess that's um, in the same sort of canon. Mm. Yeah. I've never Where did we hear about actually. that? That was in Four Futures? Yeah, that sounds right. And Anthem, I think I read, but it was uh, Anne Rand, so I don't remember it. Uh, Dispossessed? I can't remember if I read that or not. Let's see what this guy, else this guy wrote. He uh, literature revolution and entropy. I wonder if that's he wrote a fair bit. I, have to be I can't tell whether they're short that's stories or novels, knowledge. but check out the, the dragon. Fifteen stories. Mm. This is the only thing he's really well known for, if he's well known at all. Look him up on ISFDB. Fiction. Zam, yeah, ten. I always think you're going to run out of books, and you never run out of books. Zam, yeah, ten. How come he's not coming up? Okay, just do we. Oh, that's why, because I'm looking up his title. There we go. There we go. Born in the Russian Empire in 1884, died in 37. Uh, yeah, I think he was exiled um, in France or okay. Poland or something. I can't remember. Exiled. <laughs> your uh, your sound just don't went all weird. Me? Yeah, it's like um, you sound a little bit like a robot. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Shit. Uh, well, I reinstalled my OS, right? Right. And uh, I had to install the driver that I'm using for my. You're still going on it. Try hang. Try hang up and uh, come back in. Okay, will do. This is his only novel, it looks like. And then the short fiction. There's like half a dozen. Okay, that's now exactly the same. Oh shit! Okay, unplug the microphone. Sometime. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. Um. Control delete. Yeah, control delete that too. Uh, let's see. Uh, list of countries. Don't need that. Am I still a robot? Or? Still a robot. I could try recalling. You add a robot character to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but robots are symbolic, so we got to stay away from that right now. Alright, I finished eating. Did you yeah. do all uh, all the uh, Bernie memes? Because I only did the a very few of them. Even uh, Justin Trudeau did one. It was ridiculous. And should be shouted down and kicked out of the country for doing it. It's, it was just that he was wearing some mittens. It's just because everybody was watching it. I think that they think, you know, it's something everybody can get behind. So, uh, but don't you think Bernie is 
showing off his white privilege by, by not being happy <laughs> a woman was vice president. Well, he wasn't happy. But all the women, all the women spent all that time dolling up, and all the attention was was Sanders. It's evidence of a sexist culture. Do people really think that? <laughs> people will no, say all sorts of shit. on Twitter that are along that line. It's like oh, the focus should have been on all these beautiful women who have you know risen to power. And it's cared uh, about Sanders. Yeah. Or if you wasn't oh. happy enough, like too grumpy, and you should have been well, more maybe, happy. That maybe if these women. Even though that was taken like like twenty minutes before anything started, it was just like Connor. Try try, try turning your computer completely off and rebooting because it it does sound like some sort of static issue. I can't okay, cool. I can't I'm explain why, but we should get a fix before the podcast, whatever it is. Of course, I'll get the tick. Um, <laughs> this one you. <laughs> The one with the Biden. You know, you guys know I have mittens too. He's standing at the window looking lonely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then, um, uh, Evan, did you see that, uh, Lovecraft, uh, podcast I reviewed or just talked about this morning? Uh, from CBC? No. Okay. You, so you tweeted about it. Yeah. So it's uh, CBC Ideas. It's a podcast I've listened to before. It was a podcast like back into the eighties. You know, it's a it's a radio show, very long running, eighties radio show, still going, hour long discussion, five days a week. Uh, not discussion, sort of. I don't know, highbrow sort of stuff. So they did one called The Rise of H.P. Lovecraft, and uh, it's a CBC podcast now. So everything is. Everything except for the radio has to be advertised, so there's advertising in it. It starts with an ad mm. care ad for skin lotion. <laughs> it's about HP Lovecraft. Then uh there's clips for uh movies uh that have Lovecraft in it, the Lovecraft TV show, and then a really, really, really bad um animated kids cartoon about Cthulhu. Um and then uh they say the words ignored in his time. Uh and then I'm um, just, these are all quotes. Reputation as a bit of a recluse. Lovecraft wasn't a bestseller. His works appeared in pulp magazines alongside Conan the Barbarian, outlandish stories about rocket trips to the moon. So this is, so, most yeah. of this is like a mix of truth and sort of uh, yeah, opinion. That's true. It is true. I don't think he was a recluse. No, that's not true. This time, then oh, they say weird tales. It was well known among some circles. But yeah, I guess anyone in weird tales is of, ignored. Uh, from but then standard, it, it, right? it's it gets worse and worse. Listen to this. Uh, they paid their writers very little. <laughs> like as opposed to when, like today, because yeah. he made a living kind of as only being a writer only, right? Um, and then voluptuous women on the covers of the weird tales. Um, and then the, yeah. this quote from somebody, they paid the authors very little, dot, 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 uh, cause it's a big gap. And then Lovecraft was one of their highest paid, dot, dot, dot. That's not true. Um, but high payment, he was no, making no. dirt as opposed to just crumbs. So that, that whole quote is like off, right? Um, and then Lovecraft was a big star in weird tales, dot, dot, dot. He remained a niche author. Okay. Mm. Uh, so, oh, oh, you're back and you're, you're sounding good. Um, okay, am I? All right. Yep, you're perfect. Um, no more robot. So, uh, I'm just talking about this tweet thread on Lovecraft. Did I send it to you this morning? Uh, uh yes. Yeah. This, this was the, uh, 
So what I'm so interested in is like why they why they feel like they have to address it. And I'm like, it's explaining it to an audience that's not interested, right? So um, we get down to quote unquote insularity and isolationism. Then quote unquote that's just politics. I guess a particularly extravagant I racist. Extravagant. <laughs> I, I would say he's more after a, a, a North Atlantic Anglo-American mm. civilization. But it wouldn't. He w- definitely wasn't isolationist in the sense like he did. He wanted the U.S. in World War One. Yeah. Well, that's not what they mean, though. Um, stick it, and then this is the one that got me sticking it to Lovecraft, and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, that was like an author saying why they were writing Lovecraftian fiction. Because they're going to stick it to Lovecraft. I'm like, the guy died like before your grandparents were born. <laughs> you might want to consider um, picking a target that's a little more, um, I don't know, active. <laughs> spry. <laughs> spry. Spry. That's the word part. Uh, um, and besides, he's uh, like, so that these are the things. I got a couple more here. Conspiracy theorists on the internet. That's a quote. Um, this one guy was very full of quotes. Idiot upside down, up idiot upside down lunacy, and then the sheeple. Um, and okay. and then he says at the end, so what if we're dust? <laughs> That's my favorite. So what if we're dust? <laughs> it's like we. St- well, so what if the universe is giant and me- and everything's meaningless? So what? <laughs> I have a nice coffee here. <laughs> I think there's a, there's a great Philip Dick uh, quote about dust, like. We're we're only dust, and we're doing a pretty good job. <laughs> I think that's three stigmata Palmer Eldridge. Like we're doing we're doing pretty well for a bunch of dust or, or a bunch of dirt. <laughs> <laughs> this this um, podcast, uh-huh. CBC Radio Ideas. It looks like this sort of a um like a not a variety show, but they're just on talking about different pod, doing podcasts on different topics. Yeah, it's it's not a specialized. It's just like every week mm. there's a new uh, thing they cover, right? Or not week every every five days a week, really. Or at least it was. Maybe it's four days a week now. Um, mm. And it's kind of like in our time, except uh, in our time has a just slightly. If you know that BBC podcast is really quite good. Um, mm. It, it, and it can be a good podcast. The problem here is, um, so, so somebody said, ask a question. I was going to say, I don't think their research can, like, if you're doing five, four shows a week on different topics, how much research are you doing? Well, they, you know, they hire different people to do the different pieces, I guess, is the way mm. you can explain it, right? But, um, there was somebody asked a question and, uh, Oh, yeah, somebody says, reputation as a bit of a recluse. They never get tired of that myth. And I say, yeah, that's so weird. Uh, and then, single quote, he was unpopular and he was popular. <laughs> and then the other one that they say sort of implies, he was paid nothing. He was paid more than the others. <laughs> Which they so, did imply I think, that. I think some of this, Nessie, is like, um, you know how those like, Musical biopics. There always has to be some drama in their life. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's not going to be like a biopic of like Blondie. Yeah, yeah. Or someone like that. Like someone who just lived their life and, you know, whatever, got married. Yeah, and if, <laughs> even oh, when there music, wasn't... There always has to be some kind of drama. So, <laughs> like there's that documentary. I think that was done by somewhere in Britain, like on Philip Dick. Can you remember that one? It's on YouTube. 
And they just like they focus so much on those last few years and the uh, exegesis and stuff. Oh yeah, it's fucking terrible. Like it's because it's it makes Philip Dick like weird and out of place. Yeah, it's an explainer for like why you should care about Philip K. Dick, but it it it's it it feels to me like uh so yeah somebody says <laughs> his yeah in the show notes for it right it says American short story writer H. P. Lovecraft died in 1937. Now he's more popular than he was well in his lifetime. Very thing, uh, popular thing to say, and it's true. Um, uh, so was po- so is Poe in a certain sense. Hey, Shakespeare, very very popular. Ideas examines why his brand of quote unquote cosmic horror. Who are they quoting? Because uh, that's not his his words. Uh, resonates in the 21st century and how new writers are dealing with his racist legacy. And somebody points out, what? Wait, what? His legacy is racist, <laughs> rather than his writings. I said, "Oh yeah, there are a lot of weird things going on in these sorts of explainers." Trying to stick oh, it I to the heard that before. Racist legacy, right? Trying to stick it to a guy who was dead before your grandparents were born is just one of the strange things about mm. his legacy. So I think it's interesting if, if they say, like, "Oh, this this guy used to like to take walking tours of New England small towns <laughs> right. with his good friends from right. New York when they came to visit," but that would require like a little bit more research and. Around and, and it's not as what, 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 salacious, you know, what right? Was interested in and why? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, uh, he, got, he got sexually excited about Gambrel roofs. <laughs> <laughs> wow, salacious! That'd be so good drama. That's your angle if you want to make it dramatic. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Will's worried. Yeah, no, I think, um, unfortunately, like this, so many things that uh, deal with topics, but they're just scratching the surface or they're um, not that interested. I think uh, we have this radio show in Australia from the ABC, which is Radio uh, National. I know. Government. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and called Conversations, which I really like. And the guy who runs it is a historian. But I, the thing that I think is the way to do these things is like how this show does it where they bring on an expert mm-hmm. to tell them about it. Right. Explain it to me as the host because I don't know about this thing. They're not operating from a position of being an expert, which is a difficult thing to do because you really have to be an expert to do it. But when you're doing a different topic all the time, it gets really difficult. You know, it's hard to be. And indeed. Um, you have to do to your really homework. do all that research. And yeah. um, also... It's hard to sell a story if it doesn't meet the expectations, right? These are not – they're doing this for sale to CBC, mm. right? So if you came yeah. in and said, you know, everybody likes to talk about how Lovecraft's super racist, but the reason they like that is because it's it, it's trendy these days in institutions like the CBC to talk about racism. <laughs> That'd be a hard sell to the CBC is my thinking. What is the CBC? Uh, it's like the, it's like ABC. It's the it, same thing. Is it Canadian Broadcast Corporation? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Cool. I was just looking mm-hmm. up your uh, conversations. Um, uh, With what? Richard Fidler is the host. How do you spell his last name? F I D L E R. F I D L E R. Search. Yeah. I've seen it. I, they did a live show. Um, that I went to, it was really good. There it is, uh, 250 episodes, 2011 conversations. Yep. 
Oh, I see. They do it by year? Uh, maybe. It's been going for ages, so they might be organizing it by year. Um, and the podcast feed, as far as I can see, is basically, uh, at this point, they're almost syndicating some episodes. So I don't know, like, Richard Feidler's been writing a lot of books the last couple uh, of years, so I don't think he does it every week, and they just replace some episodes. Um, so, uh... Hmm. Yeah, um, there's, a, there's a bunch of old podcast feeds, and maybe that's got new stuff in it. It's goofing it up, yeah. Um... Yeah, these are episodes from 2011. Motown, Smokey Rock. Yeah, this looks Lee Child. Okay. So is this um, conversations you're looking at? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's it, but it's called 2011 conversations. Then there's one that says 2012 conversations. So there's nothing that's current. Mm. But these are, you know, this is in the pod podcast search directory. It may not even. Uh, it may not even be running anymore. Now you say that because, like, I listen to the podcast. I don't listen to it on the radio. So no, it looks like it's new episode. If you got the podcast feed, send me a linky. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Here you go. Um, um, the one uh, I I, I like out of the UK that sounds kind of similar is that one I mentioned in our time. Have you heard that? I haven't. You mentioned uh, it before. I need to check that one out. Yeah, it, it's it's very. They do like really good stuff. They they basically get three or four professors who are specialized in that particular topic. Mm. Um, and then the host does research based on notes they give him. And then they do an hour. And then after that hour, uh, they have like a little bonus extra time that, you know, wouldn't fit on the radio. And um, he says, what did, what should we have talked about? So it, it is more podcast like in that respect, but the mm. cover, like they'll do like, one show just on uh, an author, and then sometimes they'll do it just on one poem, or they'll do it on, you know, some whack job thing from, you know, the 16th century that was a movement that's now gone away. Um, and they cover all sorts of stuff. And it's it's a hugely old archive, too. Although I noticed the host is getting a he's um, pretty famous in the UK as he's a lord. I can't remember what kind of lord he is, but... Um, Anyways, he, he's sounding a little old in this one. Latest ones I've been hearing. Let me get this on my phone before I forget. Maybe there Melvin Bragg. That's him. Is that the fellow? Yep, Melvin yep. Lord Bragg. Interesting. So you got like Cultural Revolution, Plague of Justinian. Yep. Um, and it goes Melvin all over the place. And it yeah, a massive archive. So if you are interested in subjects, um, they're really good at at uh, covering it, just over time, they've just done hundreds of them. Uh, mm. Maybe thousands. Pericles. Interesting. Yep. Oh, um, as a total side note, so, like, I was just looking at this episode on Pericles, mm -hmm. and he's wearing the um, the helmet on the back of his head, like you were talking about in The Raven. Oh, yes. Uh, forget the double, Greek Double domed. Uh, what is it? Double domed. He, he's double domed. <laughs> yeah. He's got, the, he's got the big brains. Subscribing. Yeah. Life of Animeers. There we go. Lighthouses. This looks good. Is this Cyrus the Great. Yeah, it looks very similar to... Um, mm. I imagine it, yeah, probably is. Although I don't recognize a lot of the people they're talking to. They sort of organize a it lot in a of, weird way. They, um, they do a lot of sort of grass 
roots stuff almost where they don't necessarily talk to famous people they would talk to just members of the community or people who have like lived in a certain place for a long time or Mm -hmm. authors Mm -hmm. they're more focused on like promoting unknown culture than they are on um i'm I'm more focused like on the titles like it says tim cope in the footstep of and then you can't see it and then you open it up wider and says genghis khan right so like they organize the Uh, title badly um same with SFF yes. Audio Podcast should start with the name of the thing and then the episode number because it fits easier and people can see it. But I fucked mm. up at the beginning, so I continue to fuck up now. So you just got to stick to it. <laughs> yeah, that's when, once I make a fuck up, I pretend like it's never a fuck up. I just keep going, bulldozing. Yeah, that's how uh, jazz music works. <laughs> you, you, you fuck up, but it's like, well, that's the, that's the I decided that I decided that I'm gonna get a a sports car and never never give it up because I bought one when I was 18 years old. You're invested. <laughs> I'm invested. I don't care how much it costs to repair. Actually, it's very cheap. So that's mm-hmm. that's the real truth and other reasons there. Um, yeah, Neil Gaiman's showing, but see, it says myth and legend, but I recognize his face, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'll I'll I'm subscribed to that. Hopefully, there'll be some. Good ones that'll keep me subscribed. Has it got ads in it? I'm starting to hate ads. Uh, no. Oh, good. Because it's um, it's uh, on it's uh, funded by the government. Yeah, so, so is ours. Doesn't fucking stop them, does it? Ads. <laughs> they put ads for skincare on my HP Lovecraft podcast. <laughs> like he he's jerks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and also for another podcast called Brainwashed, which um I thought was uh, too appropriate. I know. An ironic title. Yes. Mm. Let's see. Is uh, Will in the online? I don't. I can't tell. I got a lot of contacts here. Type in. Type them in. Go to call. And then add Will. Who else is going to join us? Mice is not. Was it? Uh, is it Patricia? About. Uh, yeah. Let's see what she says. Um. Yeah, I hope so because she gave a really good recommendation for uh, the uh, Trish. For Trish is what she um she goes by. Fine. Yeah, but short for cool. Patricia, I think. Yeah. Okay. I always have trouble finding her Twitter address because it's P E M R P E Matson. I'm like T R I S H can't find it. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has one of those she's one of those people who changes the name of her Twitter name to match some sort of theme like you know they like Barbara oh, yes. Goolsby or something like that to, because it's Halloween and hers is Petrifid yeah. and it took me a long time to figure out that that's about the day of the Triffids for some reason oh okay hmm. because Petrifid's not a normal name pretty sure no. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god so yeah I don't want to be a uh, uh, one of those delivery guys I'm re- pretty sure that sucks did you have to do that Connor? Uh, yeah I was a um, I was a domestic cleaner for a year oh, in man. university because uh, I needed a job it was actually and uh, I was really at first I was very worried about it or like a little bit ashamed about it and mm. um, but actually like uh, no one ever treated me badly. Everybody who I worked, everybody who I like 
did jobs for was super nice, and um, but it was very exploitative. The company that was running it, no well, doubt, you're a freelancer and you had no rights. Oh basically. shit! Like they just, uh, I'd never had my pay docked, but if somebody gave you a bad review right. or you got multiple in a row, then you could. I didn't have even know that docked. was a thing. Now, yeah, now I'm going to um, have to hire them and complain so I can get a discount. <laughs> oh yeah, my well, yeah. Oh, my um, God. Oh, my God. That, I'm just thinking about how horrible people are. Because I understand, I understand why people want to be horrible. Because mm. it's easy. It's easy to be horrible. You say, well, it's mm. not my problem. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot um, easier to be horrible when there's some institution you're Oh, part. yeah. You have an institution that there's, makes you feel clean. I think it's hard. Yeah. I, I find it hard to be like, uh, nice to people when I interact with them. Mm-hmm. You know, makes me not want some kind of relationship. It's like it's like you know most people don't want to like destroy the environment, but you have to work for a company, and the boss says you got to dump this toxic waste or whatever. Mm-hmm. Do it. Yeah, not really. It separates you from morally a little bit. And, you know. That's I think one of the big. I'm kind of with Rousseau in this way. It's really society that makes us sick. Mm. Yeah, but he wasn't he like um we got to do the noble savage thing? Well, I mean, he's there's a bit of contradictory ideas there. I like, mean, we need to cancel him for that, so all his ideas society, are bad, clearly. Like the reason we create society is because we can prosper more in society, but it also is what brings out the worst in us. Mm. That reminded me, I really like this podcast um it's um I, I saw some YouTube video, and one of the talking heads was young, like young like Connor, and it pissed me off because mm-hmm. he was really smart. <laughs> I hate that. Mm-hmm. A young guy making sense. Fuck him. <laughs> I worked hard at this. <laughs> uh, so um, I, uh, you know, I, I rejected that um, instinct, and instead I said, okay, young people can be smarter, smart, maybe not as smart as me, but goddamn smart. Um, his name is Benjamin Studebaker, which sounds like a fake name, but I guess Studebaker was named after a, a car or the vice versa. <laughs> a guy was named Benjamin Studebaker, and he has a good one. I might, I may have sent it to you guys. Um, it's called uh, Poli- Political Science 101 or something like that. Benjamin Studebaker. Um, yeah, maybe this is it. Politics of Human Nature. I think this is the one I sent. Uh, Political Theory 101. I'll send it to the ch- chat here. Um, and it, it's like, um, what, what I like about it is, is basically they did sort of like, uh, they both read a couple of books, and then one makes an argument, and the other one goes, hmm, 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 while the other guy's talking. And then, <laughs> and then there's like a big moment of like a minute of silence, and the other guy says, you, you, you've really made me think here. <laughs> then, then the other guy talks like that for like half an hour or whatever. And he goes, the other guy goes, hmm, hmm, hmm. <laughs> and, like and then, they, you know, they have a bit of back and forth. Like a lot of political philosophy comes down to this question of human nature, though. Like even it, like all of Chinese mm. political philosophy is basically a debate about right, right. human nature. And how, how to, to manipulate it. 
the Confucius, Confucianists say we're bad, and the Taoists say, oh, we're not so bad. We don't need all this state crap. Mm. So the, the, the latest one, Durkheim and Lucas on alienation, anime, and reification. I, I thought that was really good. Um, they had one on Bentham Mill and the Utilitarians. I skipped that one for some reason. Um, but I like it. I, get, I look at my phone and I'm like, fuck, there's nothing good to listen to, right? I, I listen to whatever the podcast I'm subscribed to. And like, if there's, if they have a shitty show idea that week, I won't listen to it, right? Um, but every once in a while, I find a good podcast and it's like, oh, yeah, I remember why I like podcasts because this is a good podcast. This Studebaker guy, I don't know who the other guy is, he was like just saying smart things on Twitter. That are basically free of um, whack job, whack job uh, ideology. You know, mm. like almost everybody. Like I had this conversation with uh, I, it was neat. Like somebody was talking about the new Conan comics, and um, a blue check came into the conversation and said a couple things, and I, I explained how he was slightly incorrect about why things were going on, and and then. He said something else, and I said, um, well, yeah, but this is, you know, 100 times better or 10 times better than, I mean, it's a little little bit of hyperbole. Oh, yeah. Um, but the mm. thing was, is is I I think he his... Did he? And he, did, he muted me. Um, but the thing is, ah. is like, I think a lot of the times this is happening is because, you know, once you're in with a group, that person's your friend... Um, because they're your colleague and they, you know, can affect your reputation in the industry. You need to get work from Marvel. So you can't say bad things, even if you think bad things. And that's sort of like all over the place with like reviews. Uh, maybe I, I tweeted a lot, a lot at you direct message, Connor. Like, um, there's a podcast out there that I think is like, it's the anti Jesse podcast, right? Cause the guy. <laughs> Oh, he had Robert J. Sawyer on, right? And I, I'm, I was interested in Robert J. Sawyer's writings and stuff, but he's stuck up and stupid in many ways. Um, he's full mm. of himself. He, he thinks he's an amazing writer. He's a good writer. He's interesting and interested in some things, but he's also really stupid in that he thinks he's going to live forever by some consciousness uploading and he's deluding himself in a certain sense, right? Mm. And then, so this guy, he does his, his show. It's all about like, they get the guest on, they talk about their book, and then the guy, the host makes jokes that are sort of not about anything. <laughs> just like, mm. and I'm like, oh my god, this is the opposite. I try and get weird, weird people who have no profile, um, because I think they're interesting rather than I want to make friends with a famous person. Does that make sense? It's like sort of the opposite, yeah, yeah. opposite kind of. I mean, I, it's not smart if I want to be working in the industry, but I'm thinking there is no podcast industry. That's a mistake. I mean, maybe there you can is. Do whatever you want. Yeah, I, I think there is. Like, there is some sort of weird podcast elite, but um, uh, but I, but your philosophy with like, oh, was this? Hmm, did you say this for a sort of like? You just kind of, uh, if you have interest in something, you put it out there and people will find it if they're also interested. Yeah. I mean, that's how you found my podcast and me, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then you, it's not like I need to do this. You say, hey, I did this video and I'm like, oh, that's cool. 
Um, mm. And that's why we're friends, not because you sent me a free audiobook and I'm going to get to review it and, and talk to you because you're famous and that's going to make me famous. Yeah. And uh, by the way, I want to mention I spotted um, a show based on Shirley Jackson. Maybe it's a movie called Shirley. Ooh. Did you see that? Yeah. With Is it? Uh, I don't know. I just saw it on Kate, on Kate Moss or someone. Let Moss? me look here. Elizabeth Moss. That's it. The actress. Yeah, it's a biopic. Yeah. I've actually watched it because uh, I don't really watch a lot of movies, but I should. Yeah, it, well, it's sort of your bailiwick. Uh, I find Shirley Jackson's work very disturbing as opposed to Lovecraft's. I find yes. it h- hilarious. <laughs> it's, um, she's uncomfortable. She very un- me, like it's, uncomfortable. It's like an abused person talking about uh, taking abuse and then putting out abuse. And then yes, uh, it, it's, 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 it's pretty disturbing. It is, and that's, and it's like, I don't find it enjoyable to read. I think it's, <laughs> like when I read it, right? Like I'm obviously a bit obsessed with Shirley Jackson. Yeah, right? yeah. When I read it, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. But I have to force myself to read it because it, because I don't feel good after I read it. No. I feel like bad about the world. Yeah, no, it's um, it's definitely it, it is. I feel like it's very disturbing. Mm, that's um, and uh, I think. Uh, as a lot of people have said, she's been misrepresented as a supernatural horror author. Even yeah. though she does have some supernatural themes, it's more about the relationship between people. But I'm um, going to say, save it uh, for the podcast. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I should watch this movie, though. I really should. Yeah, I saw it on uh, Prime, I think it was. My mom mm-hmm. has Prime, so I have Prime on one TV. And I don't watch much on there, but I do a lot of scrolling just to see what the hell's going on. I oh. think the actors they got look like they're pretty good. Oh, like, she looks. Uh, I know she got the glasses. <laughs> yeah, she did, and you know she looks like a, a pretty fair match for Shirley. But also, I think her husband is, looks very well cast. Mm. Whoever played Edgar Hyman is uh, pretty good. I don't know who uh, Shirley film. Michael Stuhlbarg. Like yeah, I think this this one got buried by uh, by COVID. No doubt, this film. Yeah, honestly, though, how how would you even find out about it, right? Like, I, if you're not well, if you're not in the watching trailers, how would you? How do you find out about things anymore? Yeah, I mean, I'm reading her books and doing all this research, and I barely knew that this film was happening. Um, and I'm and I think I, in a way I, I should be in the circle who would know about this film but I, I wasn't at all i feel like the most of the people who like shirley jackson like it because she's in that uh new yorker right she was in the new yorker and that that's their kind of crowd mm. like I, uh, yes, like it's literary true. rather than um disturbing fiction <laughs> um uh, I, she's I, treated I, like she's treated like that southern u.s writer uh, as a light dying you know who, who i'm talking about evan William. Um, As I lay dying, I know what you mean. Yeah, what the hell book is that? Uh, Faulkner. As I lay Faulkner. Faulkner. William yeah. Faulkner. Yeah. As I lay dying. Yeah. I read that book in school, and I'm like, this is a really fucking weird book. Oh yeah, it is. I mean, um, they, they had a really lot of fucking weird books. They choose to say, hey, this this is a good book to represent stuff, and like some of them, I get like. The in this, you know, we got a lot of the American books. Like, mm. there's um, what's the 
Evan, maybe you know this one. Is um, she's still alive? She wrote like Rumblefish and uh, I don't know Rumblefish. <laughs> oh, fuck. Um, Essie uh, Hinton. Mm. Um, you know Essie Hinton? She, she, she's, yeah. She's like, um, she made all her money, um, like selling to schools, I think. You know, like she's, nobody reads her out. Yeah, it's The Outsiders, right? Is the main one. Yeah. And there's a movie. There's a whole industry of books that are designed to sell to, um, schools and then they make movies to sell to the schools as well and the outsiders is one like that right and then if you can get in on that the what's the what's the black and white one uh about two kids running around the south while their dad is a lawyer trying to defend a black man to kill him that's the one right (laughs) there's like a, a selection of these books right and I yeah. feel like so, I mean, Shirley Jackson's this, a short it's, story. The necessities of nationalism. It's like you have to kind of have your mm-hmm. national heroes, right? Right. And so your national book we, we authors. Esta- we established who they are in your like grade school and high school literature classes. You say, okay, so for us, it's, you know, this person wrote one book, right? To kill a mockingbird. <laughs> but maybe they'll read Hawthorne, right? One story. Mm-hmm. You know, so they come out of this idea of who the great writers are. And that's who they can put on their shelf and then press their neighbors with. Yeah, yeah. But then you have, like, what you're talking about, like, the CIA push in Animal Farm. Right. Comes straight up ideology. Mm. That might be part of it, too. I mean, I think, I mean, To Kill a Mockingbird is a great story because mm-hmm. or, cause it, it's, it's somewhat about racial unification. It's like, oh, we, we've come together, right? Like, it's mm. what's the other story that that, that that it's a movie that just came out didn't win a bunch of Canada yeah Ga- great Gatsby with a white guy drives black guy oh in the south oh uh, the green book or something like that that's green right green book yeah it's like the yeah. the white hero so yes. the same thing happened like in South Africa this mini series Shaka about Shaka have you guys seen that one yeah or King yeah. Shaka Zulu like that was really political because it was all about how basically work together. And at the time that part of the cult they produced this movie, which is kind of praising the black heritage, but also showing the British as pretty good guys. You know, it downplays the Empire. Right. It really works politically for that time. I, I don't think a, a movie like that would be made now. Uh, interesting if they tried to do a series about Shaka now, what would what would it look like? But if you can get on this, if you can get on this gravy train, the um, the mm-hmm. school industrial oh, complex, cool. school book industrial mm-hmm. complex, um, there's no amount of money that they won't print for you, right? Um, all the kids gotta buy a book. All all the, the kids cost. gotta buy. All the classrooms gotta buy the book. Then they gotta buy the film, and then there's a whole subsequent industry of. Of like websites that do cliff notes and like mm. and and also just there used to be cliff note books for all of these books too, right? Yeah. And Shirley yeah. Jackson sort of that one story of hers is um the, the lottery. That, the lottery, yeah. right? It's that version of the short story that they shove in to say, Oh yeah, and short stories and Shakespeare too. But but the yeah. only way to make money from Shakespeare now is you know, like serious bucks is to make 
movie adaptations that they use for like 30 years after, and then they come up with a new movie adaptation that they use for 30 years in schools, mm. right? For all the schools that don't actually send the kids to the actual plays being produced locally, they they can watch the movie. And mm. so that the shaping of the culture... Um, uh, What's weird is once in a while the books are actually pretty interesting, but what's what's the one about kids nuclear war uh, in a bunch of boys on an island in the South Pacific after World Lord War Three? Lord of the Flies, right? So this yeah, is like yeah. that book is really interesting, but it's, it's fucking uninteresting to me because I spent so much time f- working on it. It's, it's like I'm trying to understand. Like it's super weirdly literary mm-hmm. for what it's trying to do. Have you guys read mm-hmm. that book? Yeah, I've read it. But it's been a while. I don't know. Something about that book. I just don't dig. Yeah, no, it's it's actually an interesting book. I, I, I am. I'm a Rousseauian, so I, I this idea that without society will just become horrible. Right? <laughs> mm. We got to go noble savage, yo. Uh, yeah, but yeah. That, that's my my problem with all the post-apocalyptic. Like Lord of the Flies kind of fits in that genre in a way because it's you know. Yeah, no, you're right. That's what the book. That's right? what the that's point of the book is. Apocalyptic lit, but it's almost always people being horrible with one another. Yeah, so I, I can't watch that Walking Dead. What, uh, what's the movie? The Road. Yeah. Right? Have you guys yeah, seen the road. that? The Road is it's super depressing. I hear the book is just the same way. Well. So here's, here's what I would say about that is um, the distinction that I would make is that I don't think it's about without society, we would be horrible. I think it's when resources get scarce, things get horrible. Oh, sure. If there's a lot of resources, people would just be nice to each other, even if there was no society. That's, no that's true, either. except on that island, they're fine, right? Piggy, Piggy yeah. and his uh, and his buddies. That that's actually it's much more seems to be about like Cold War shit. I'm not even sure that's empirically true, though. It's... Um, there's been plenty of for most of human history. It's been there's been scarcity. There's, no, like if you're on a ship, if you're on a ship and you know you got no food, no water, people do um, sometimes uh, you know defect, and especially if they're they're groups, they can attack each other. But that's um, yeah, it's not the it's not all one thing. I'm gonna add yeah. Trish in here. And, I think we're gonna have her in a minute. Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying, Evan, is that people are, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't know enough about this topic to guess having a, a very informed opinion. But um, well, I guess I think it's an ideology. Like when I ask my students this question and some variant mm. of it, like how would we, you know, what would if we didn't have prisons, if we didn't have police, you know, because police are historically novel. Prisons are pretty novel, too. So. Mm. Imagine a world without it, and they can't. And they just think, oh, everyone would be able to. Only thing that's keeping me from killing all of you right now is my belief in Jesus. That's the only mm. thing. Yeah. If I didn't think Jesus was going to be judging me later, you'd all be dead. I'd be eating your corpses right now. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. reasons. Well, that's, that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's one reason I like that Cultures of Darkness book so much, because that's looking at cultural spaces that are like. Hidden from the state. Oh, right? uh, one like, thing they didn't mention in that. Sorry, Brian Palmer. And oh. he, uh, you know, they're all positive. Like, he also talks about how, like, fascism should have its roots in some of these subcultures and things. But 
By and large, they're they're fairly cooperative and creative. The pirates, they're like the pirates. I guess they're one of those groups. I like pirates. I need to check this one out. Looks interesting. I mean, you were talking the other day about the the pirate Pirate code. code. Yeah, I love it. They create all... Without the state, they end, and without capitalism, they create a, a working system. I guess we're still in the capital world system, but they're, they cr- they create a better. But most importantly, they declare war against the world. That's the best part at the end. Right? You say, okay, ye, ye the undersigned, <laughs> make your mark here. <laughs> you, sign, you sign the articles, now we're going to make war against the world, a.k.a. we're going to raid all these ships that are passing through with gold and shit and, and rum and slaves. I'm going to take that shit. Yeah. That's going to be good. Um, There's no audiobook for this, but I'm going to check it out. I'm going to read this because this looks pretty fascinating. Culture of the Darkness? No mm. audiobook? Yep. God I damn it. Yeah, he's a labor historian from Canada. Oh. I think he was the editor of the Canadian Labor History Journal, Travail Labor. Travail. Bilingual. Okay. Travail, yeah. And I haven't read too much of his stuff, but I love that book. It, mm. it, it, it's, you can kind of skip the theory stuff at the beginning. It's like he's trying to kind of merge Foucault and Marx. And if you're not into that stuff, you can just skip it. Get into the stories. Mm. Did we get Will? Hello. Hey, Will. Hello. Your audio is all over the How's place, but hello. Uh, I think I was, I think Sorry. I was physically all over the place. Ah, that's probably what, leaning in, leaning out. Diving yeah, left, you know, diving right. I'm bobbing and weaving. I'm uh, I, I'm like uh, my uh, countryman Muhammad Ali. <laughs> uh, your internet sounds a little spotty. Uh, you run your ping. See if you're uh, you can shut some stuff down or yeah, restarts like, or whatever. Uh, yeah, I just shut down some some stuff. Hold on. Yep. The cash is clay, yo. Yeah. Well. Uh, <laughs> That's my slave name. Don't don't call me I, that. Yeah, well, I mean, he had like the like the name of like the literal slave owner. Like, I I think that's a pretty awesome name though, uh, Cassius. I I wouldn't mind being named Cassius. Yeah, it sounds cool. I mean, Muhammad, but though, so does right? Muhammad Ali. Yeah, Muhammad Ali sounds cool now, right? Because <laughs> he's Muhammad Ali. But if you're if you're if you're just walking down the street and this guy's named Cassius, you say Cassius. That sounds stupid, and then you think about, oh damn, I'm jealous. <laughs> Connor, see that's that's uh, that's a, a very uncommon first name, relatively common last name. Yeah. How did you get? Well, I'm, how did I'm you get given? Last name. How did your parents say? Uh, hey, we're gonna name him last name, first name. All of our, well, okay, um, all my siblings have, we have slightly odd names, not very odd, but like my sister's Annalise and my brother's Max. Um, so unusual. Is Max short for something? Uh, uh, no, it's just Max. Wow. I hope there's, oh, I was so, going to say, I hope there's two X's. Damn it. That would be cool. Um, Dude. But uh, I suspect, um, I have a sneaking suspicion, no way to confirm this, but that me and my brother were named after 80s movies. <laughs> I think Max, my dad loved Mad Max. So oh, good. Okay. Is that that? And That's I, a 79 movie, yo. Oh. Wasn't, oh, yeah. wasn't it, it was, 1979? Uh, yep. Mad yeah, Max yeah. 2 is like 1981 or something. Mm-hmm. The Road Warrior. Um I think I was named after the slightly less, uh, less, uh, I don't know, um, 
cool Highlander. Oh, awesome! And there can be only one. Sorry, there can be only one. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. If if it were if it were not for the social norms, I'd be running around with a sword chopping everybody's head off because there can be only one. (laughs) Exactly. It all comes full circle. Awesome. Um, Hi, Trish. How's it going? Sorry, I'm fiddling with my tech. Yeah, you and uh, and Will and and uh, Connor earlier. Yeah. Surprisingly, Evan's got good internet. Uh, it's oh, the day. I was going to say I forgot to mention um, Evan in that podcast. I didn't quote it out because I was I was like, who even cares about this? But they also said Lovecraft was not interested in witches. I'm like. Oh come on! Now. <laughs> what do you love? That's crazy. Uh, say, uh, like uh, basically, it was in like, context every of other letters. Like you've got to <laughs> right, but it was in the context of like he didn't believe in the supernatural, and and that's totally true, right? But it, but they dismissed it with the fr- you know witches and that stuff, right? And I was like, oh man. Because he is super interested, he's no, way too interested in witches. Of darkness book, yeah, that's right. That kind of takes that witch cult of Northern Europe argument that the witches are a real subculture, not just the fantasy of patriarchal statist men and Protestants of darkness. I mean, most historians sort of think that to some level, it's it was a delusion. Of, I'm gonna of, tweet it. Um, that, that was my understanding. And it, certainly, that certainly the numbers of women who were killed as witches, some of that was that paranoia. But I mean, I I also believe there was subcultures of people hedging their bets on magic. Yeah, well, they I go to think, church, yeah. and then they also do some stuff on the side because you know the church doesn't help you with your pregnancy. The witch might, you know. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think it's like when for a lot of places when they were. Um, Christianized, right? A lot of the, they were like, well, we've got this old religion or whatever it is, um, or, co- or local culture, but we can't just tell them to stop doing that. So let's adapt it into Christianity. And that's where you get, like, I know in Poland, right? There's a saint, I think it's Kapala. And, uh, there's no such person as Saint Kapala. There was no person, Ivan Kapala, who's the saint, never, no historical person. But it, there was a festival called Kapala before Christianity came through Poland. So they just adapted it. And people still Well, the, the still Spanish did that. the same thing in, in Mexico. Because they said, mm. like, oh, Quetzalcoatl, oh, they're real. They're just, like, demons. Mm. It was mm. easy for the part of the Spanish saying, you know, you shouldn't, like, kill people for demons. We uh, kill yeah, the people. You don't kill the people. We kill the people. When we do it, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you got you got this backwards, guys. We get to decide who lives and dies. Mm. <laughs> well, there's a, there was you know, like <laughs> there was a tweet that somebody that. saying, "Watching this show, Madam Secretary with my mom." I've never seen it, but I heard about it. Which seems to be a show about a lady who does war crimes, but you're supposed to feel sympathy for her. <laughs> and I, I say, women can't do war crimes. <laughs> Definitional. <laughs> bombs dropped by women or people of color are just hugging bombs, and they only give ouchies to the bad people. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> What's this show, Madam Secretary? Yeah. It, I mean, it's Hillary Clinton fanfic under a name. 
Yeah, cool. it's 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 like uh, the, uh, the spin-off of the West Wing, except um, instead of hugging it out with other nations, they uh, drone bomb people. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I'm guessing. I haven't. I've seen the West Wing. I haven't seen Madam Secretary. Right well, you got to you got to do your homework, Jesse. Yeah, well, I, I, that's why I'm just making jokes. Uh, CBS. Okay. Um, how, how's my connection sound? It's sounding better. Yeah. I, I'm I'm going through my cell phone. I'm on my computer, but I'm using my cell phone. It should work as, as long as you're. Internet. Yeah, it should. It and should it, work. It's plugged in and stuff. It's Excellent. Fine, so. Perfect. How are you how doing, Patricia? Connection sound. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice is bad. How is how does my connection sound? Sounding good. Sounding good. Okay. You, you all want to do a show on a dog? Yeah. Sure. Okay, let me get my recorder up.